in memory of Kenneth Welsh, who passed away on May 5, 2022. It was known for many roles, but one of which was Twin Peaks' Wyndham Earl. Thank you for your inspiring work. How nice it is to reunite with an old friend. But our special agent has a lot to learn about the horrible nature of the world around him. Where a kind word is scarcely found, and where, when you begin to ask questions, you are far more likely to receive in return puzzles rather than straightforward answers. Wheels within wheels, wouldn't you say? Our plucky young friend should have learned by now that you can't save everybody, much less yourself. And now, because he is such a slow learner, his lesson will have to be extra painful. (laughs) Let us resume, shall we? Hard time. I'm giving you a hard freaking time. Freaking revelations. You know what I'm not going to give you? Things. I'm not going to give you three severed fingers. You're not giving me three severed fingers? No matter fingers. how much you ask, mm. I will not do that. You will not give me three it's severed like, fingers? It's like the song. I will do anything for a podcast, but I won't do that. <laughs> three severed fingers. Uh, in the biology room, the biology building, three severed fingers are found. Dale then meets with an FBI agent who comes to investigate the weird finger scenario. Yeah. This FBI agent's name is Wyndham Earl. Which, by the way, he had met also at a job fair, if you will, with Wyndham Earl. Wasn't this the first time they met? No, this is the first time they met. Uh, he mentioned before that the job fair was the big one. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I thought he meant it. Well, either way, he gets remembered way, later. He gets, to, he gets to meet Wyndham Earl plenty yeah. of times. And, he, and Dale Cooper says that Wyndham Earl is a, a man of uncommon intelligence. After talking with him, I now believe I may have been looking to understand evil intellectually as a substitute for confronting it heads on. I said heads on instead of head on. Head on. Apply directly to the forehead. Head on. Apply directly to the forehead. Head on. Apply directly to the forehead. Anyway, my point is uh, that Dale Cooper starts to feel like, you know what, after meeting this real agent, Wyndham Earl, it's making me think that maybe I was making excuses. Maybe I could be doing something in the real world and trying to fight it rather than just intellectualizing it all the time. Because <laughs> Wyndham Earl really inspired him to do good in the world. You know, and that's not ironic and dreadful and <laughs> foreshadowing at all. We're just spicing up Garmin Bosia right now. We're just adding, mixing it in the pot, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Ah, cream corn's disgusting. <laughs> um, w- the, the, the. <laughs> Meeting Wyndham Earl reignited his interest in the FBI, and in the one year wait until his age of eligibility, Dale only records two messages. Both are very brief, and the second one stating in February 1977 is just simply, quote, evil does have a face. No elaborating, unprompted, he just says that into the <laughs> void. What's the face look like? Who knows? Who knows? During the simulations, Dale is far more astute and accurate in his assessments, and aside from the situation with Agent Robin, it seems like he was very successful as an FBI agent in training. (laughs) He gets assigned to the Violent Crimes Task Force in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And Wyndham Earl is also sent to Pittsburgh to head the office. And Earl remembers meeting Dale, says he's been following Dale's progress since he arrived at the Academy and has not been disappointed. Meanwhile, Dale is impressed by how good Wyndham Earl is at chess and Earl's wife, Catherine, 
put Catherine? It's Caroline. Why did I put Catherine? That's a different Catherine. character. Wife Caroline mentions to Dale that she hopes she, he is experienced <laughs> of taking a life. I'm having trouble reading today, okay? Carolyn is melting into this weird <laughs> thought of like everything in Twin Peaks. Uh, mentions to Dale that she hopes his experience of taking a life for the first time will not affect him the way that it affected her husband. No elaboration. Don't worry about no that. No elaboration necessary, no. So, again, feel free to disagree with me, Professor. I mm -hmm. find it disappointed we didn't get more of Caroline. <laughs> she feels very much like a background element. Yeah. And despite the fact that Dale grows attached to her, there's not really a lot of incidents or involvement of the two. Like, we get Dale's perspective on his connection to her, but mm -hmm. we don't actually have memories with her or moments with her. There's far more development on characters like Marie or April than there is on Caroline. And as a result, I feel like Caroline doesn't feel like a real tangible character i don't i don't have a personality for her she has no personality but that's the thing like at this point likely it might be an affect for everything that's happened to his past it could be an affect for um his overall resistances especially after robin or his overall recognition of being near Wyndham earl that he may try to avoid or resist himself from speaking about like these instances with carolyn but as far as the items are concerned for one uh carolyn is someone that was introduced along with Wyndham earl and number okay. two when something happens to carolyn he is around carolyn so much Professor. more with many instances where there's something off screen that may cause more Engagement interactions, especially for someone who is in a helpless situation, Professor, which seems to appeal to <laughs> Cooper in many ways, especially in this potential white knight fashion as we're about to go deeper into it. Sir, I am convinced you are set apart to antagonize me. Mm -hmm. That I say Marie, you say Mary. I say Caroline, <laughs> you say Carolyn. And we are just locked in name pronunciation. You just kept saying Carolyn, and I'm like, I've been saying Caroline, yeah. making me look like a weirdo now. I thought, I don't know, we always get this name mixed up in the show. I thought it was Caroline in the I, show. I'm pretty sure that they said it both ways themselves. Okay, well, brrr. anyway, I wasn't even paying attention to what you said. I'm sure it was great. I agree with everything you said. Whatever horrible blasphemies you just said. Thank you. You're, you're. Uh, so <laughs> later on, Wyndham calls Dale and he uses a voice Dale had never heard from him before. I like to imagine it was th this voice right here. Dale Cooper, it's me, Wyndham Earl. I like to believe that's what the voice was. I was going to do a Kermit and then it turned into a Mickey Mouse and it ended up being neither of those two things. <laughs> but he, he hears a voice on the phone that he's never heard Wyndham use. And Wyndham's like, oh, Dale, go with me to an area frequented by crime figures. Oh, and Dale's like, mm, this doesn't seem like the bureau procedure, but you know, Wyndham Earl, he's experienced. I'm sure he's got a rational idea of why he's supposed to do this. Yeah. When Dale gets there, he finds Wisdom, Wisdom's car and Wisdom's wallet and Wisdom's ID, but not the Wisdom himself. Mm -hmm. There's like, there is an actual point in which like Wyndham Earl is someone that is not in his insane form at this time, but there still seems to be a struggle between personality. We just barely get it. We just, we, we, we get it in snippets and it's really the question of whether or not like keeping it obscured enough is a benefit or not. And yeah. I, and I think that that can really uh, depend person to person for me uh, personally. I feel that this like light flirting with it, um, can still leave it into question on whether or not Wyndham has been like plotting or was just insane uh, right. in ways that was slowly 
broke to begin with. I think that the introduction with Carolyn <laughs> emphasizes uh, one point that Dale Cooper, during one of his jobs, he actually ends up killing someone, and that actually deeply impacts him because right. one way that Cooper is described is that he's someone who keeps his gun clean. Like, this yes. is a rare instance, but he broke that instance, and that almost felt like a something that may have corrupted uh, him or at the very least, like, shook him enough that could lead him into the mm -hmm. path. And that's actually something that uh, Carolyn will also emphasize that something similar happened to Wyndham Earl where, like, he had something happen. Well, I, like I said before, she warns him, like, well, not really warns him, but just hopes, she expresses hope that he doesn't get affected the way that Wyndham Earl was. Yes, this. but still uh, paralleling very early on Wyndham Earl and especially seeing where Wyndham uh, it starts behaving in this fashion in a mm -hmm. more insane way and also seeing how Cooper ends up in an insane way, I'm... I, I'm wondering what might be potentially flirting inside of Wyndham's head. I don't think they're actually flirting that much with each other, but maybe with the darkness. No, no, no. Wyndham Earl's head being flirted <laughs> with. Like, That's fair. One, one thing that um, I don't mind bringing up a little bit early as we kind of continue on, it makes me feel that when it comes to like a power dynamic that, again, we can parallel Wyndham Earl with uh, Dale Cooper a bit more, mm -hmm. especially with more of this context of something happens in both their lives, something then ends up corrupting them, whether it, uh, like it's a form of insanity or something like that, yeah. to the point that they become different people. And uh, the ending scene with Wyndham Earl where like he's faced with Bob almost makes me think that the entity that found Wyndham Earl, whatever that entity's form sort of takes... Um, it was a bit too ambitious before meeting with Bob. It's almost like an imp meeting with the devil. If That's you a will. good way to compare it, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is where I, I still believe that Wyndham Earl was just a pawn, and he was always kind of like a little mouse playing in the paw of the lion. Yeah. Uh, I I don't think that Wyndham Earl ever had that much control once he arrived in Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know the woods do something to a person. <laughs> uh, there's a part where Wyndham Earl goes missing after this weird phone call. And at some point he just calls Caroline and all he really gets to say are two words repeated. I'm sinking. I'm sinking, which maybe suggests a self-awareness that he knows what's going on to some degree, mm -hmm. like a little moment of lucidity surrounded by the sort of darkness yes. of his mentality at this point. Mm -hmm. um, at 9.30 a.m. the next day, Wyndham walks into the office and collapses. Dale doesn't know where he's been for these three days, but in the meantime, there's been two dead criminals and there's been severed hands. Things have been, you know, turning up that are very concerning with Wyndham Earl also being gone at the same time. Someone's been busy with their handiwork. <laughs> I gotta give him a hand. <laughs> Or, or two. People are dead. People are dead. Fictional people. It's okay. Uh, when Cooper <laughs> talks with Wyndham Earl the following morning, Wyndham seems cryptically to mention the idea of a crack in the door, cracks in the door, seeing the abyss and finding wonderful things in the cracks in the door. Mm -hmm. uh, Cooper asks, what did you see? See? Yes, what did you see? Dale Cooper. What did you see? The abyss, Coop. The abyss! <laughs> um, I inter interpret the Dale Cooper as being, you know, synonymous with the Dale Cooper of the season two finale. Uh, probably not intentional. Time is weird. Probably not intentional because season two finale had not aired yet when this was made. I don't know if that line was in the script already. Mm -hmm. Questions upon questions. That's just my headcanon. What head was recorded, cannon. what was uh, yeah. set up. It's just my headcanon. Uh, but th there's also the wordplay here, right? That he sees this abyss, he sees this darkness, and in this abyss, he sees Dale Cooper. <laughs> and... It could be interpreted as 
he's just saying Dale Cooper's name because he's like coming to consciousness like, oh, that's who's talking to me right now. Mm -hmm. Or more likely, that is the answer. He did see Dale Cooper in the abyss. (laughs) Um, Very interesting. Wyndham Earl claims to remember nothing, which may or may not be true, depending on what consciousness you think is going on with Wyndham Earl. Mm -hmm. And Dale hopes the two of them can put the puzzle pieces together. And meanwhile, Wyndham Earl looks forward to a quiet game of chess. Uh, the follow-up investigations over the next four months turn up dead ends and no arrests were ever made for these situations. Wyndham Earl encourages Dale Cooper to go on a vacation to get his mind off things and recommends that he goes on this island and seek out this old man who previously had taught Wyndham Earl how to play chess. Yep. Dale goes and looks for this man, finds him. The old man looks into Dale's face for a moment and says the words, La muerte. Which means... Death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then stands up to leave. Dale follows him, not taking the hint, seeking an explanation, and got one as he turned into a dark alley. Quote, there's death in your face. I can teach you nothing. Dale asked how he knew this, and the man shook his head and said, that is the wrong question. Mm-hmm. The old man then disappeared into the night. Again, not taking the hint, the next morning Dale seeks him out, only to find him hanging from a rope tied to a rafter like Harold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which, by the way, um, in this podcast, put a pin into asking the wrong questions, if you will, before literally dying. I'm You're putting a pin in that? Yeah. When does that come up later? Oh, I can, I'll release the pin then. Oh, is it, oh, it's in this episode. No, I won't. In this episode. Not, I, I was just like, you haven't seen the return. You don't know what's happening. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the question, uh, ah. like, like no, asking no, keep, the wrong question. I'll, okay, I'll I'm like, putting the pin back. I'll, are you sure? Are yes. you sure? I can, I can move it off to the no, side no, if you need a pin instead. It's fine. Okay, put the pin fine. back in. I'm putting it back in. There. there. Ouch. The pin's at, there. Not no. me, professor. Don't yes. put the pin in me. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, he's yeah, he's hanging from the rafter. I, I bring up Harold as again that comparison point of was this person silenced by a lodge spirit or mm-hmm. was it death by suicide? You're up to, up to your determination. Mm-hmm. Um, up to your determination. And he left a note saying cryptically, "Forgive, I was just a stupid old man. May God stop him." And Dale wonders who him is, but the locals, ah, the old man was crazy. Don't worry about it too much. <laughs> again, the him could be Wyndham Earl. I prefer to think the him means Dale Cooper, that he senses kind of what happens at the end of season two, mm-hmm. that like Mayday, we need to stop this person right here. I would say that you can even put it in the context of what's happening in the book. No matter what, tragedy yeah. befalls him when he's on his path. If you are in the way of this path, the, the not great stuff is going to happen to you. Uh, misfortune follows Cooper, or at the very least, misfortune is ahead of Cooper and he's just walking his path. As it kind of bulldozes into where he needs to go. Somehow, Dale ends up under the powerful influence of a narcotic. And for the last 20 hours, is kind of in this semi-comatose state. Um, And he says this opened windows into his subconscious that were ones of terror. And he has a premonition that something awful has happened or is about to happen in Pittsburgh. When Dale gets back, he learns that Caroline has been indeed kidnapped. He notes that she would have disappeared around the time the narcotic had started to affect him. And Dale notes, quote, there is a Tibetan notion that there is no such thing as unrelated events, that everything is connected, which seems to imply uh, for more of Twin Peaks original, the the series run, that sort of mentality of looking into the small details of things. There's a story earlier in the book where 
Cooper relays the story of someone who had committed a crime and like stolen a bunch of funds. Mm -hmm. And the only reason he got caught is because he bought his wife flowers and (laughs) his wife thought that was so unusual that she had someone spy on him because he thought the, the, she thought that the flowers were a sign of guilt that he'd been cheating on her. Mm -hmm. So because of the flowers, she suspected him of cheating, but that private investigator found like the millions of dollars he had been stealing. Mm Mm-hmm. The point being that small situations, small details should not be ignored. If it seems like a coincidence, pay attention mm-hmm. is kind of his mentality. And so he draws that connection between what happened on the island with that old man and the narcotics, and then also drawing that to what happened to Caroline. And Wyndham Earl seems particularly interested in this comparison as well. And Dale notes that Wyndham Earl, while exhibiting interest, showed no sadness or even surprise at the old man's death. This is where, again, by this point, it seems like Windham Earl is not in control. At least not the old Windham Earl. Not, yeah, not in control or, at the very least, is not the only one present at the table at the moment. hmm And now, also at the table, is a vagrant found wearing Carolyn's sweater. Mm. And the man tells Cooper... Interesting for a vagrant, don't you think? Mm. Yes. Yes? I'm saying vagrant just because whenever it comes to something like a vagrant, uh, when we're thinking of, say, for example, Fire Walk with Me's iterations of mm. individuals who are also present near the table uh, sure. could be described as vagrants. Yeah, one could say. And uh, this figure is wearing a sweater, that Caroline sweater, and Cooper asks, you know, where'd you get this? And the guy says, God gave me the sweater. Mm-hmm. And he says that if you look at God, you turn to stone. And with God was an angel with a blood-red face like Christ. The angel was without a sweater and screamed like a woman when God hurt her. And he knows it was God because he told him to carry his message, God is everywhere. So I'm interpreting, uh, tell me where you disagree. I'm interpreting the angel, since it says screamed like a woman, is to be Caroline. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming that God is Wyndham Earl. I'm interpreting it that literally. Um, (laughs) Where are you at with it? Do you do you also share that? I think the angel screaming like a woman with a blood red face is a little too like mm-hmm. on the nose. That I think it is just literally Caroline. I don't know whether or not to chalk it up towards these characters or to just again give it like a mythical mystery, if you will. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I can most certainly see your reading with that. Yeah. I, I this one had me scratching my chin a little bit. And, and Dale came to some conclusions himself. He reasons that if God is everywhere, that might be code that you know God hears everything. There's a mole in the bureau, which actually, as I was hearing it, that's what I thought too. Like, yeah. I, but to be fair, I also know. We all know. I also like, know who the killer is. At this point, we yeah. had like literally like a checkerboard nearby the hands and so on. Yeah, so. it's most likely anyone reading that this reading this book, even in the nineties, they probably would have been aware of Wyndham Earl by the point of reading this mm-hmm. because this book came out around the end. Unless of season this is two. your first iteration of Twin Peaks, unless that you unless it is, unless it is. Um, when Dale tells Wyndham Earl this thought that maybe it's someone in the bureau, Wyndham's like, yeah, you shouldn't tell people about that. Just, you know, better keep that in the down low. Don't tell anyone. Which, you know, to Cooper probably just sounded like, oh, yeah, you know, I don't want to alert the mole and then they, they run away. I should keep it quiet. Mm-hmm. But Wyndham Earl clearly is like, don't tell anyone because that, that's me. Don't do that. <laughs> um, Wyndham agrees to let Dale put him under hypnosis. And uh, this leads to an interesting conversation. Cooper asks, where are you now? And Wyndham Earl responds, there is much light and it is very dark. What do you see? Truth. (laughs) Why were you taken there? 
I was not taken. I was chosen. And then Wyndham goes on to say that he was released to do his work, which Dale can't see, but Caroline saw it, or Caroline saw it. What was it that she saw? Love and evil. Wyndham says he can't take Dale to where they took him because you can't get there from here. Then Wyndham laughs. He then plays back the interview to Wyndham out of hypnosis, but Dale doesn't note his reaction. There's nothing in here saying how Wyndham Earl reaction, reacts. Dale just says he played it back for him. Right now, it seems to be very akin to, say, for example, the one-armed man when it comes to like this potential like relationship. It doesn't seem like the, lo- like the personalities have blurred entirely, or at the very least, it's being faked very elaborately. And this is, this, is, this is a question of, yeah, what do you think? Because I remember noting on here too, like does Wyndham consciously know what's going on now or not? Like when he's put under hypnosis, is that activating the other side of him the same way that not having the haloperidol does it for, you yeah. know? I, I, I think that this is where um, like we see the descent of Wyndham Earl. We don't see, again, everything with Wyndham Earl, but I do fully believe that we are starting to see more and more of this conniving nature sort of like peek through, if you will, mm-hmm. kind of bobbing out. Um, in order to try to reach through. And there could, like, I think that there could be very much a, I feel more to it, mm-hmm. that there is a point where Wyndham Earl will start just behaving like Wyndham Earl, but it, with the overall face and guys. I just don't know where to put, like, when yeah. the full switch it's, comes. It's the same thing with Leland and Bob. It's hard to know where to draw those stark lines, and a yeah. lot of times it's somewhere in between. There's two people... And having the same body kind of switch a rowing back and forth. Uno mm. reverse carding each other. <laughs> um, I find it more compelling if Wyndham Earl's not possessed mm. at all. Mm-hmm. I find it more compelling if it's all an act. And I, and I think there's enough wiggle room that I can do that interpretation and not yeah. be contradicted. Yeah. If I want to believe, and I kind of do, that Wyndham Earl is not under any possession, he is just driven mad by his own desire for this sort of power. He got a taste of something, he saw something, and he wants it, and he's driven by it. So this hypnosis thing is him putting almost like an act on, that when he's hypnotized, he starts acting this way and being maybe a little bit more blunt with his things. He's mm-hmm. only saying things that he wants to get Cooper's reaction. Yeah. So I'm willing to believe that he's not possessed. At the same time, I do think this book overall lends a lot of evidence to the camp that he was possessed. Mm-hmm. And I, I think your analogy of an imp meeting the devil later for Bob fits that Wyndham Earl may have been under the influence very directly of a spirit, even inside of his own mind. Yeah. The same way that you have Philip Gerard or Leland I just find that less compelling. I prefer to think of Wyndham Earl as someone who is constantly wearing a mask and pretending because that's the kind of character he seems to be. He's mm-hmm. always changing his outfits, changing his personas, and it's all about this sort of manic chess game. I like to believe that underneath it all, to quote No Doubt, the in Gwen Stefani in her band, <laughs> underneath it all, I'd like to believe that he is just a person. He is not a lodge spirit inside there. Mm-hmm. But I guess my question for you is, regardless of what you do believe is more in your head canon. Okay. What do you think is better or more interesting? Like, what do you think is more compelling to you, whether you think it's likely or not, that Wyndham Earl is faking this kind of stuff with the hypnosis or that he does have a spirit inside of him? I think that they're compelling for different reasons and so on. Um, the one that I end up preferring myself um, is probably more that there is a spirit leaking through, but mainly because I think that Dale Cooper being an echo from Wyndham Earl or vice versa 
in the respects of their overall turning, their overall insanity, and their overall well-beings being twisted by the nature of things external, if you will, on whatever metaphors or whatever comparisons you can bring things such as the Red Lodge spirits to. I think that that benefits like a myth lore nature of it all, this very cryptid-like um, style in which I think there's... Cryptic large... or cryptid? Cryptid. Okay. Mm. Like a, like a, like the animal? Uh, cryptids are multiple animals, like right, mysterious like the, animals that yeah. are obscured, if you will. Right, the so that, that's nature. what you mean. Though. Yes. Okay, making sure. Yep. Um, in this obscure nature that makes everything filled with so much curious speculation that it then becomes its own fun game. Making a fun game out of the fun game, man, is just very appealing to me. Meanwhile, I do think that having this person that slowly becomes corrupted and just becomes just more naturally maniacal I think still is a fun reading. I think that still is something fun for my own mind. But I don't know. I think the myth, uh, the mythical natures of evil um, are becoming more and more convincing to me mm. as I see Laura Palmer, as I see Dale Cooper, and as I see snippets of Wind Merle. I think you may be on what is considered by the fandom to be more the Mark Frost side of things. Mm. Whether true or not, I'm still personally trying to evaluate it and think about my own feelings on it, but a lot of times people will associate Mark Frost with the mythological and the lore side of Twin Peaks more than they do David Lynch, mm -hmm. who David Lynch obviously more in the abstract and ambiguous. Yeah. Um, you seem to be more on the Frost side in that way. <laughs> you you seem to, to buy into the mythology of it. I will trust your judgment on that because I myself am unfamiliar with We will these find sightings. out when we get to the secret history of Twin Peaks, <laughs> Most baby! Certainly. Most certainly. Woo! <laughs> For the next two months, Caroline's whereabouts remained a mystery. And then suddenly they find someone who IDs as Caroline, but she is appearing to suffer from a drug addiction. And she's basically nothing like her former self. She doesn't recognize Wyndham Earl. And people are so worried that she's like dangerous, that they're gonna, she's going to harm other people or even harm herself, that they have to keep her under constant watch. So it's like a Ronette syndrome, if you will, in which like a memory issue is happening. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and again, the linkage of drugs are interesting because I don't think we ever got any indications from the series that Caroline had ever been affected by drugs. But mm. that's been a running theme with Teresa Banks, Ronette, and Laura. Yes. It's just that Caroline was never using before. She was never using before. And to our might knowledge. Have been an instance, yeah. It might have been an instance at this time from whatever forces. Or there might have been a point before. Anything that has been shown in this book or anything that has been shown inside the series, mm -hmm. there's no implications of the before time or area of constant use. As they are doing their studies, they learn that it was heroin that was in her system. And she was just like completely addicted to it by this point. Yeah. And they also found another unknown exotic dangerous compound. And I don't think we ever learn what that compound is. They never say we don't. it. Um, are you also thinking it's either haloperidol or something similar? Haloperidol or something similar, yeah. I think I, just, at first, just like, for consistency across the series, it would make sense. Consistency potentially, but also there is just the potential resources that yeah. Windemarl could be tied to that I lean more to like the mystery drug, if you will. Just because haloperidol is something potentially identifiable and isn't yeah. like kept away from the knowledge of 
That's say, true. For example, in the series, so and there was enough in her IV when someone tried to kill her while she's in the hospital. There was enough of, enough yeah. of the IV to kill twenty people. So the fact that there's enough in there to kill twenty people and they still can't identify it, it's not like they're dealing with small doses. Yeah, like they're dealing with a large dose well, of just something they've never seen before. It depends. Like there are some <clears throat> things in small doses that can kill twenty people, if you will. Yeah, like your sense of humor. <laughs> 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 Caroline starts to recuperate, and as she's recuperating, she's recoup rating in yeah. that she's warming up to Cooper again, and so it's calling him Coop. She is. Uh, there's points in which when she is around, say, for example, Wyndham Earl and so on, uh, Wyndham Earl even vocalizes that he is concerned that his overall presence might just kind of like bring her back into mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of a poorer state. So in order to try to get her back to her regular self, uh, Coop should be the one to look after her. There's likely a bit of trust because at this point, Cooper is a partner to Wyndham Earl. So mm-hmm. it, 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 it's it, it's a fun little bit of time in which we can get Cooper <laughs> Fun as in no one's having a good time at no all. No one's having a good time, but Cooper's getting back into, well, his wishes. His again. wishes. He becomes enamored with wanting to help Caroline, saying he never wanted anything more in his life than to help her. Yep. Uh, going back to those, again, recurring ideas of Cooper as the sort of white knight to a fault, it's really hard to separate Cooper's attraction to Caroline from his urge to help her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he already respected Caroline from first impressions. You know, he thought that she was really intelligent and charming, but it was never clear in the entries of the tapes that he was like in love with her and like that. Yeah. It doesn't seem like he starts falling in love with her until after the incident, after she's, I'm not going to say helpless, but like definitely in need of help. And this is when Cooper all of a sudden starts have feelings. It could be coincidence. It could be that he just conveniently starts to find her appealing and attractive <laughs> right around the time that she's almost dependent on him. Yeah. Um, so there are some, I think, enforced implications to wrestle with why Cooper finds her so appealing and her her fragility. I mean, like, I think of the series, Audrey, uh, he doesn't reciprocate the interest in her. Yeah. But then with Annie, Annie's kind of a weird situation where she was, like, coming back from trauma uh, Annie, we don't know the exact specifics, but she had something had happened to her where she went to the convent and then came back and was rediscovering the world. And that's when Cooper found her. Not necessarily that she was like desperate in need of help, but she was someone who was more unaware of the world, someone he could show the world to. He got to be kind of in control of that. So again, if you want to read negatively into Cooper's intentions with people, whether intentional or unintentional his intentions might mm-hmm. be, there is a parallel that even though Annie was not like in the hospital in dire need, she was someone who was not necessarily at the best possible state of her life. There's a certain fragility even to Annie in those moments. There can also be some point of question, say for example, when it comes to Cooper trying to keep his distance after his overall poor history, whenever it came Mm -hmm. to like letting in people, if you will. And it's very hard when he's trying to be someone who is trying to protect these individuals and trying to aid these individuals when they are in these courses of trouble, almost having to open up on an empathetic and emotional level, in which slowly that's when the hands can sort of like reach in and grab at him for these overall wishes and desires. As, again. as that one song says, reach out and grab you. Abra, abra, cadabra. The magician calls out between two worlds. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this also reminds me too of like, how much do you want to read into in the dreamscape world? Uh, Laura and Dale Cooper kissing. 
right? Yeah. Uh, on the lips, and then the whispering of the secret. Yeah. And it is this weird conflation of the victim with someone who is appealing in sort of a central environment for him in the dream. Mm-hmm. That's weird that he's dreaming not of, like, saving Laura, but of, like, Laura kissing him on the lips. Yeah. Um, and this is, I think we're touching upon why some people may dislike this book. Mm-hmm. is that these are bringing up really uncomfortable rooms of speculation yeah. on Dale Cooper, who a lot of people view, and I and I think understandably, and I yeah. think I mostly am in this territory, view Cooper as one of the most virtuous characters in all of Twin Peaks. Yeah. And, like, he's the good guy. He's someone who just seems, like, really out there to try to help people. He's, like, lighthearted. He's really whimsical. He's charismatic. And it's really easy to, like, like Cooper. Mm-hmm. So when you're confronted with a book that keeps giving you these implications about him. And we're, we're taking these implications and kind of running with them, yes. but it gives us room to run with them. I can see why someone reading this book is like, this is not my Dale Cooper and understand. I don't know why they talk like that. That's how <laughs> they talk. I don't know why, but I could see that and understand that, that this is not going to be everyone's cup of tea. I think that overall, yes, it may do that for a character in general. And I do recognize, and I do respect those overall views. What I take from this and what I thoroughly enjoy from that is Coop's sort of continued growth and transformation over time. I think again, whenever it comes to Paus past instances such as with April or such as Mm -hmm. with Carolyn whenever it comes to someone who might be more vulnerable or whenever it comes to someone who could have that overall opportunity or chances and we look at the point with Audrey's character where she's literally sitting inside of bed it shows a bit more testament on Cooper's overall well-being and growth at that point being someone who can put those wishes and desires aside and see First and foremost, someone who needs help. Mm-hmm. And you get Cooper contrast with Wyndham Earl, who clearly is the bigger evil here in the situation, no matter how you dice it. Yeah. Um, there's parallels between them, but almost to show their contrast, they're, they're foils of each other, where Cooper has been long questioning the battle of good and evil, viewing evil as having a face, having a sort of tangible presence, but wondering if good can ever stop it. Wyndham Earl comes out of this sort of state where at this point he's basically just regarded as not well mentally, but like he's still considered a victim at this point in the story. They don't know that Wyndham Earl is anyway, a perpetrator of these crimes, Mm -hmm. but between Cooper and Wyndham Earl, whenever they do talk, Wyndham Earl between his like mad ravings will just suddenly start talking about how like eventually evil will conquer good because basically evil is willing to do whatever it takes to win. And mm-hmm. only the victors are ever going to be remembered. And Dale Cooper's kind of left reeling. Cause he's like, Oh dang, this is coming from the most like respected best mind in law enforcement that I've ever met. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and this, and this is where like, I think the book kind of, you just have to go with it. When Cooper says this is the best mind in law enforcement he's ever known. I don't think the book has proven that to me. I think it has told me and not shown me that. Yeah. I wish there was like at least one big case that they solved together that I could really get a sense of their strengths as a team and a partnership. But I'm willing to just be like, okay, I believe you. I mean, based on seeing Linda Merle in the show, mm-hmm. sure, he's probably a brilliant detective. Mm-hmm. I just wish I had seen it, you know? <laughs> um, Anyway, while Wyndham Earl is being watched as well as Annie, Wyndham Earl ends up getting attacked. He's put under protection as well. And this kind of gives him a little bit of an alibi too, where it's like, clearly Wyndham Earl didn't do it. He's getting attacked as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that is not necessarily as it actually appears. Which that brings into question, say for example, when it comes to that knife, like is it more so accomplices in turn of like the person who was wearing the sweater before who said that he saw the face of God. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is it something where like Wyndham Earl was able to keep his prints 
off of it and hide anything that would imply that he struck himself? Like, how did this investigation even go? Or is there even, like, a more mythical element that we could even consider inside of this? I, I think going back to the conversation about Cooper's ethics, uh, maybe a balanced way to look at it is that Cooper is by no means a flawless hero, but you could argue that it is, I don't know, kind of indicative of him that his fatal flaw is loving. Yes. Like, his favorite flaw, favorite flaw, his well, favorite I, you, flaw. you could argue his favorite flaw, I guess, <laughs> is falling in love with the wrong people under the wrong circumstances. He's not someone who's known as like a habitual liar or cheater or, you know, something like that. But he does experience this sort of flaw where he, Wyndham Earl is his partner, for one. He respects Wyndham Earl a lot as a mentor. And Wyndham Earl and Caroline have both been through this horrible circumstance and this is when he starts falling in love with Caroline. He mm -hmm. can't control the way he feels. I mean, feelings are what they are. You can't yes. control that. It's what you do with those feelings. And he doesn't really suppress it. He doesn't really try to do anything to stop it. He lets this side grow. Mm -hmm. So he is talking into the recorder and saying how um, he loves Caroline more than life itself. Every thought, every impulse, every waking second he wants to devote to her. Mm -hmm. He wants to help her heal and protect her for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, then it talks about how they made love under a bright spring sun. It's the first time that he's ever seen her happy since the end of her ordeal. And then at some point, Caroline even records her own message on Dale's recorder, just saying, I love you, Dale Cooper. So again, instead of like being more upfront with Caroline, like, you know, Hey, I know I feel this way about you. You feel it about me, but right now you're under this kind of stress and mm -hmm. I can't do this to Wyndham Earl, your husband. Uh, I want to make sure that, you know, things are right between you two before I do anything entering your life like this. He just goes. And, <laughs> and I, it's, it's sympathetic because you know, you can't control the way you feel about that, but it's also like, ouch, you, at this point, Wyndham Earl is still your friend and partner and you're kind of going behind his back with his wife and it doesn't make you look great, Cooper. Mm -hmm. It is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I still like it to also note with this is that he has grown so accustomed at this point to something such as the silver old tape recorder mm -hmm. for how much he'll record for it that I, I have to kind of question if it's on the same, like, tape, if you will, that he's sending off to Diane. Yeah. And, like, Diane's even, like, catching up on all of this going it, it on. Is, it is unclear, and I like that it's not clear. I don't necessarily need to know, but I, I would like to imagine, yeah, Diane just sitting at the, the desk there reacting to all this weird drama that's going on. With different, like, varieties of reactions, like, ooh, oh, ah, just <laughs> periodically. Uh, yeah, every time you get a new tape in the mail, it's like a new piece of gossip arrived. Like, what's the juicy details? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, and basically, as soon as Caroline is starting to remember who attacked her, she's starting to remember what's going on. Dale Cooper's at the height of believing that love can conquer evil. The next day, Dale Cooper gets stabbed. Caroline is killed. And he is completely at this incredibly low state. Um, notable here that, yes, here, I was, here, I'll, I'll save my trivia. Yes, you have a thing. I, I find it very interesting. Like, Wyndham Earl and both Dale Cooper are both stabbed, if you will. Yes. And that's just sort of like mirroring an instance when... And that is just something that continues to go along with the constant mirroring between Wyndham Earl as well as Dale Cooper. Mm -hmm. I I'm constantly like thinking myself back to like moments where like Wyndham Earl actively like attacks and strikes at Dale Cooper in a way from the red room and yeah. so on. I, I, to be a fly on the wall in this sort of instance, can I imagine something in which like a Bob Coop 
might overall appear because time is weird and sort of like strike upon Dale himself? Can I see more so Wyndham <laughs> Earl pop up in the, this maniacal nature? Yeah. Is it a physical direct wound? You, it, it, it's left so obscure-wise yeah. that it can't help but make my mind sort of race on that. You, you've got a precedent in the sense that in Fire Walk With Me, Dale Cooper is in the Red Room talking to Laura from the future. So there's already yep. the idea that the Lodge Red Room type of scenario can influence the past. Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, that is where potentially there, there's no reason to say that's not the case. Mm -hmm. I'm, so, I'm still, I'm still waiting on that connect collect call that we got from Annie before help Dale Cooper, please help Dale Cooper before disappearing. In yeah. nothing. <laughs> from the twin peaks wiki, uh, Caroline Earl is stated in the book, my Life, My Tapes, to have died in 1979. Actually, that's very interesting as well. Her name is Caroline Earl. Yeah. Well, yeah, because last name. Yeah, no, I know. Wyndham Earl, I got that before. Yeah. I never had the idea of making the name phrase Caroline Earl. That's, which that's is, her name phrase. It <laughs> is. Anyway, Caroline Earl's name phrase, <laughs> she died in 1979. And in the series, Cooper said that she died four years ago, which would place her murder at 1985, around that time. Okay. So there is a discrepancy between My Life, My Tapes, and the show. Um, is it a major one? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think you have to choose within yourself how far long ago you think things happened. I'm more inclined to believe probably the four years ago from the show. Um, one, because the show, I think, is a little more authoritative in my headcanon yeah. than, than the book. If, well, the, if they did, if the two disagree between the book and the show, I typically give advantage to the show. I would probably, it really depends. Like, was it just a vocal line spoken by Coop or? Like, yeah, Cooper said that she died four years ago. I, as someone who, myself, like maybe Cooper's just generally better at it. But as my, me, myself, mixing up overall years and time as overall time stretches on and on and on and taking something as a book, if you will, that says I'm recording exactly on this day. If I'm going to take a majority of the book as canon, I could overall yeah. say it's just a fairly close discrepancy, but it's a human error. I, I, I think it's, I think there's a point to be made that, yeah, the book is very specific. His tapes are very specific, but I also find it very strange that Cooper would be wrong by three years on potentially the most impactful event of his entire life. Like, at least in the top three most impactful events of his entire life. And All Cooper right. is so specific about things and so introspective and self-aware in a lot of ways mm -hmm. that it'd feel really strange. And I don't think he's lying because I, I don't know exactly. I'm assuming that this four years ago was said to, like, Harry Truman because I know that's who he told about Caroline. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have the exact episode, but I just saw it from the wiki. But mm -hmm. if he's telling Harry Truman about this, yeah. he has no reason to lie to Harry about that and to exaggerate it by three years. Yes. So... It's a small error. It just depends on where you think the events are happening. And mm -hmm. then you can also look at other material. Like when we're looking at the return or secret history, if they ever establish the Wyndham Earl Caroline timeline again, we'll see which one they side with. Fair. You know, and, and kind of just look at like which one's the odd one out. Time has always been weird in Twin Peaks. Time has always <laughs> been weird. Is it future? Is it past? Death of Caroline. Caroline's dead. Sad. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> impressive, impressive impressive speech i'm so sorry <laughs> um and and cooper cooper wakes up alive and he's realizing what happened and he says that the doctors say i am very lucky to be alive i told him that if they believed that then he understood nothing of what life really was beyond the simple act of pumping blood and he says that he understands caroline was buried 10 days ago and he wishes that it had been him instead i'm mm. um, actively mourning that Cooper, at this point, doesn't know Wyndham Earl's culpability, so Cooper blames himself. 
Uh, when he's nearly dying of blood loss, he doesn't have the strength really to say it, but inside he's wishing that they would just let him go. Uh, so again, very, very low point mentally uh, and psychologically for his state. Um, and I almost wonder in a very backwards kind of dark way, if learning that Wyndham Earl was the one responsible, almost, you know, it abdicated him a bit of that guilt and maybe it gave him a bit more jolt of reason to live. Mm-hmm. Because before, if he truly blamed himself for Caroline dying, after what happened to Marie, after what happened to, again, insert X number of people yes. by this point, this would be a devastating loss. But once he realizes, wait a second, it was Wyndham Earl, not me, he could still have regrets of not stopping it. He could have regrets of not doing something about it. But I, I would imagine that it does make it a little easier to cope. Human intent as opposed to the belief of a continuous curse. Yeah. It, or at the very least, at least mix it to muddle it a bit. Yeah, Cooper never phrases it as being a relief to find that out, but yeah. I almost wonder if in a way it was. Like, yeah, he lost his mentor and friend, but it does let him kind of say... It wasn't me that mm-hmm. did this. Um, anyway, that's my interpreting here. Da, da, uh, da. Wyndham Earl, what? You do da da da? Yeah, da da da. That reminds me? me of the uh, the Indian song Tanuk Tanuk. <laughs> I was trying to go in da, for da, da, that da. one song that was like, wasn't me. Da da da. Wait. Da 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 da. Wasn't me. That's what you were going da, for. Da 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 da. Wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> Someone stabbed Caroline. Wasn't da, da, da. me. Incredible, incredible. <laughs> uh, there's this part where Wyndham Earl is sitting in a corner, unmoving, just kind of there, and the doctors had wheeled Dale Cooper in to see him. And for minutes, Wyndham Earl's just staring at him, unblinking. And then suddenly something happens. There's a change that goes over Wyndham Earl. Again, maybe some evidence that he's being possessed in some way. Yeah. And he comes over to him, and he stands up, and he just starts laughing. And Dale Cooper's trying to communicate. It wasn't working out. And all that Wyndham Earl said was, chess anyone and then he's then uh, dale cooper's wheeled out he looks back <laughs> over at windham windham's no longer laughing his eyes are just locked and he speaks again your move and then he starts laughing uh he's very joker like um not that's not a bad thing i don't think i think, I think that, it matches up with how he is in the show yeah i think that goes into like uh joker mentality and then kind of like smooth in a little bit of hannibal lecter yeah. If you will, there's there's an intelligence. <laughs> it's like there. a recipe. Like, you know, start with a base of Joker, bring it to a nice <laughs> simmer, and then start slowly stirring in some Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> You're looking for the nice nutty accent mm-hmm. in the flavor profile. After baking at 350 degrees over the course of about 15 to 20 minutes, be sure to take it out, let it cool, and top with chess pieces. <laughs> That's for the extra crunch. <laughs> your your dinner guests will be puzzling over the secret ingredients. <laughs> it's Garmin Bosia. <laughs> you just sprinkle a little cream corn in there. It's getting gross. I don't want to eat that. Um. So yeah, for the next, you put in people. Yeah, and then it gets just gross when you incorporate cream. Well, corn? I wasn't thinking people literally. I was thinking cream corn literally. People metaphorically. <laughs> What's the metaphorical form of Joker? Well, okay. Well, they have uh, at, at uh, Little Caesars Pizza. They have crazy bread. And I imagine that's it, because to Joker, crazy bread is just regular bread. So let me get this straight. You're you're, you're <laughs> faking something by using the prime ingredient as, of already as... freshly baked crazy <laughs> yes, bread. Yes. And stirring that Hannibal in Lecter, a bowl. Hannibal Lecter might be people, actually, though, now that I'm thinking about it. Because <laughs> metaphorically, what's the food of Hannibal Lecter is people. 
Fava beans. Fava beans. Um, could be lotion in the basket. I haven't seen the movie, by the way. I still need to see it. It's lotion on the skin. Why is it lotion putting, on the skin? Why are you lotion on? It's it, not. It puts the lotion on the basket. Is there no basket? It puts the lotion on the skin, or else it gets the hose again. The hose again. Okay, I thought basket for some reason. <laughs> Put lotion on the. Anyway, basket. Dale Cooper goes into a basket for six months and makes no further recordings, other than two cryptic ones saying. I don't know who I am. We search and search and always end up looking into the same mirror and at the same reflection, hoping that we will find something different. And then at the end, him repeating, heal, 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 with a desperate please at the end. Mm. The thing that strikes me the most is that, again, very specific phrasing of, we search and search and always end up looking into the same mirror at the same reflection, hoping we will see something different, hoping we'll find something different. I'm not saying that, this was intended to be a parallel to the ending with Dale Cooper looking in the mirror because I don't know if Scott Frost even would have known about that at the time of writing this book. We don't know. But I, you know, whether it's you know literally the mirror or not, it makes me think of it, and that's my headcanon I'm going to. <laughs> and it, it really recontextualizes it. Like, yeah, in general, the phrase looking at the person in the mirror, that's a very common phrase. But with the context of Cooper very specifically he eventually did find someone different looking back at him in the mirror. It just doesn't have the connotation of positivity that the quote might be looking for. <laughs> and just again, thinking of like how low of a point this is for Dale Cooper at base, the idea that he feels people, including himself are always looking in the mirror, like hoping that they're going to eventually look back and find someone else looking like a better version of themselves, someone different. He doesn't want to be himself right now. Yeah. He doesn't want to be this person. And again, after losing Caroline, I can understand where he's coming from with that. But whether it's four years or one year, that's not that much time between this exact low point and him entering Twin Peaks. Yeah, and even, say for example, because it's not that even long in Twin Peaks, where say, Cooper ends up re-experiencing these moments with Caroline. If you, again, take this overall book and put it into a sense of, like, canon parallel or not, yeah. um, just having that potential thought revisit in his mind before a actual image does actually end up occurring inside the mirror can be chilling. That, that That's very I, chilling. I really like this element, well, again, whether intentional or not, that he's just hoping one day to look in the mirror and if it would be something different, something better than himself, and it ends up being Bob. Like, that's that's really... Better. Which, if you connect it to the dream figure, that's the person who wanted in since he was, like, a 14-year-old. <laughs> that's, again, interesting, I think. Yes. Uh, this is where the book, I think, takes a weird turn. On, on February 1st, or as my notes say, February 1st, I didn't put the T at the end. Uh, in 1980, Cooper says he's not ready to believe it, but he is certain that Wyndham Earl was insane long before the events of that terrible night, that Wyndham Earl was the one who stabbed him, and that Wyndham Earl was the one who killed Caroline. He says he doesn't have any evidence, he can't prove it, but he's sure of it in his heart. What throws me off so much about this part, and I've seen it pop up in other people's reviews too, yeah. is that it doesn't really elaborate on how he came to this conclusion. And, you know, there are months where he's not recording. There are, you know, situations that he might have found. I, I, I added in the phrase, no evidence. He didn't say that. He just said he can't prove it. So yes. maybe there's some evidence that's just not conclusive. I'm just kind of underwhelmed, as other reviewers I noticed have been too, that this important reveal, uh, important realization for Cooper happens off screen. And he just kind of tells us he's certain of it now. But mm -hmm. there's no compelling reason or change of how... We didn't get his reaction to figuring it out. It's just kind of happened off screen. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be, again, underwhelming. I get it. It's just that this would have been an opportunity to maybe give us something for this. Okay. Uh, instead of just telling us after the fact. Okay. 
Because the realization that Wyndham Earl had killed Caroline is so critical and huge that to just be casually told, like, I'm certain of it in my heart, even though I cannot prove it, and it's just not elaborated on any further, it feels weird. Mm -hmm. It feels, like, underdeveloped. It, it can feel like a underdevelopment. It can also feel like a tr attempt at affirmation, like a bit of intuition inside of himself that either might be biased or might be supported or so on, but... yeah. More so him making sure that it is spoken into this thing, this point of this item of comfort for himself. And this is tough, too, because if we didn't have confirmation explicitly in the show, you could argue it's wishful thinking. Yeah. And he just wants to believe Wyndham Earl did it because, again, it helps him cope with the, the guilt and trauma. It, it could have been at that very moment, though. Right. That, that was It's the just case, later it gets but, pretty much confirmed, unless yeah. you believe everything with Wyndham Earl's hallucination or something. <laughs> eh, dream theory, who knows. Um, Dale also is on the side that Wyndham Earl was in some way possessed. He says that Wyndham Earl was taken over by evil and that the kidnapping that had occurred with Wyndham Earl, you know, quite a while ago at the beginning of all this, it was mm -hmm. a kidnapping of the spirit mm -hmm. in some way. Again, he doesn't have any evidence. He just, like, believes that. Uh, Wyndham Earl maybe gives the best evidence of all because every time Dale talks to him, the dude is just acting super suspicious. Uh, Wyndham Earl is replying nonsensically, incoherently for a while, but then Dale all of a sudden asks, you know, what does evil look like? And Wyndham Earl replies that, you know, Dale, you're always asking the wrong questions. Said the exact sort of statement said by the teacher. But the thing is that Wyndham Earl never says this to him. Maybe it's something that he, like, thought of, similar to his overall teacher's teacher having a similar line of thinking. But my overall thought brain is thinking to itself, like, this is the same phrase from a man who hung himself very shortly after uttering this phrase. How would that sort of, like, connect other than having either A, that same wavelength, or B, whatever is going on inside of Wyndham Earl's head mm -hmm. is a little bit more potentially omnipotent, if you will. Mm -hmm. on this overall thing. Yeah, it is It is very strange. Um, then Dale is like, okay, well, if that's not the right question, what is the right question? And Wyndham Earl replies, what doesn't evil look like? So to Wyndham Earl's mind, whether you perceive it to be the true version of events or not, Wyndham Earl doesn't view like evil as this roaming entity, like Dale might think it is, that's just somewhere prowling in the world. Evil is everywhere. Evil is the majority of things. There's only a little bits of good here and there that are being swallowed up. Again, evil's the predator, and it's everywhere. Um, which I think is, again, a compelling difference between the two of them. I think that overall evil can just take any form at all. Anything that could be innocent, it could be temptation, it could be something kind, it could be something cruel. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, evil is going to be a corrupting force. Mm -hmm. Well-intentioned, not whatever you want to give forward. And especially whenever it comes to these sort of like eldritch beings that we see, we can't even tell whether or not any of them are outright evil or good, judging yeah. from moments, say, for example, when they're helping out Dale Cooper. Are they just helping him out to get eased into the overall Red Room? Are they? Helping they're not as interested in person? human ideas of right and wrong. They're, that's not exactly. really their prerogative here. They mm -hmm. have their own motivations. <laughs> uh, I don't know if in the Twin Peaks universe, the motivations are, like, beyond human understanding. Uh, they, like, the way that Bob and Mike, you know, again, for the Lodge Spirits or the, the place of the giant, the way they talk... It doesn't sound they're like, like they're omnipotent, overwhelming 
beyond our comprehension, you know, God at the end of the book of Job, right? Mm -hmm. I don't get the sense that they're coming in in a whirlwind and like, we understand everything because they seem to have almost like human-like qualities in the way it almost reminds me of, and I, and I am ignorant here, I'm not an expert, but it reminds me almost more of like your Greek gods, right? Who can have vain tendencies, jealousies, um, sex. They can have, well, Zeus, he can be a goose, he can be whatever you want him to be, and probably what you don't want him to be as well. <laughs> Zeus can be a goose. <laughs> but, but. Oh, you silly goose. You silly goose. Um, <laughs> hey, geese are terrifying, okay? You don't, don't you dare. <laughs> but my point is that they don't seem to be super overwhelmingly all aware, because even Fire Walk With Me, Mike is like, you know, hey, you stole my corn. Like, that. that's his motivation, the way he talks. So, mm. uh, we don't know the full implications of what that means and what that looks like, but. Yeah, it's a very strange element of the supernatural forces being outside human understanding, but not necessarily that far beyond. They just don't care that much about what people think of them, it seems like. They have a lot more power. Multiple times, by the way, throughout the rest of the book, Wyndham Earl manages to attempt to escape without managing to succeed to escape, but then obviously post-book will succeed to escape, thus entering season two. During this time, he'll occasionally send letters to Dale Cooper, and again, prison, uh, not prison, hospital security, I guess is not very good here. It's again, reminds me a lot of the Joker where like somehow they keep letting him get out, but, but <laughs> Wyndham Earl is still getting letters across and at the, toward the very end, like on the last page, he sends one more letter to Cooper and he says, quote, seems I've not quite been myself for the last several years. I would like very much to make up for all the lost time between us. And I think I know just the thing, a test of skill, one last game, me, the brilliant teacher, revered by all inside these dreary powder blue walls. And you, his promising, if not predictable, student. Is it a deal? Good. I will make the first move very soon. So, again, hinting very heavily at what's going to happen with season two. I like Wyndham Earl in the book. I would say a lot of the Wyndham Earl sections between him and Coop when they're talking and yeah. when the letters are being sent are some of my favorites, even if I find the Carolyn elements to be underwhelming. No, I think that overall is valid. I think that when it comes down to the Wyndham Earl, this book does not stop from a sense of area of hype and speculation that Wyndham Earl can be, if you will. It's just that it's not going to be a full service to Wyndham Earl. It's still going to give more of the weight to the reader. But I still think that it's more than what the show initially gives to start branching out and grasp onto more straws into Wyndham Earl. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, Wyndham Earl is a... If I could compare, if you will, this book is more of a forest for Wyndham Earl, whilst the show is a nice plane. You'll still find some trees to explore, but for mm -hmm. the most part, a lot of the things that Wyndham Earl wears... Um, is very plain to see, if not a little bit strange on what you might come across. Inside of here, I can't tell you on whether or not I think that Wyndham Earl is this mythical creature, is an actually sound person being trapped with this per uh, ideal, is someone who is trying to be a tactician, if you will, mm. amongst this overall insanity. I, I think that it makes my brain go a little bit more wild, and I like that. In, in response to your musings, it made me think also of the line that Bob says when uh, Leland, right before Leland dies, he refers to Leland as a babe in the woods, which, uh, again, Bob saying that 
what's our trust level on Bob? <laughs> like, how much do we believe Bob? But it is a rather strong statement, and it would imply that Leland, while being possessed by Bob, did not know what was going on. Yeah. And at least to Bob's claim, was innocent of this. You mentioned the idea of Wyndham Earl in the forest. It reminded me of that. If Wyndham Earl is indeed being possessed by some form of evil... Is Wyndham Earl also a babe in the woods? Um, does he even know what's going on, what he's capable of? It, it very much puts a potential, uh, yet another parallel, to someone such as Leland Palmer in mm -hmm. this case. Mm -hmm. And Dale Cooper throughout the book has many musings about the nature of evil. At one part in particular, he breaks crime down into three categories. He says there's crimes of passion, crimes for gain, and crimes of insanity. The first two, they have identifiable motives. Um, if that someone's doing something for passion or gain, you can usually identify what it is. It's the crimes involving insanity that he's most concerned about. He says, quote, there is no more focused mind than the one that has created its own reality. And for that reason, it is the insane criminal who is to be feared more than any other. There is no gray area in madness. It is an absolute form of twisted truth. And again, the idea of fear being brought up very explicitly by Cooper here, fear and love are what opened the door. And there's the idea that fear is what the insane criminal in his mind is capable of. Mm. And that's, again, is Wyndham Earl the insane criminal or is he a normal person who is under this extreme possession of some form of <laughs> tangible evil? The, the book can, can leave you with your own thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Along these same notes of sort of evil and, and Neil Cooper's musings, there's a case early on, it was his first mission, where he rescues a little girl who had been chained to a tree and basically left there. And he, when he sees her, he describes her as being like a frightened animal and mentions that phrasing frightened animal twice and it like haunts his mind. Mm -hmm. The sort of reducing a person to almost an animal-like state, not in the sense of like, you know, oh, they're a wild animal, but more in the sense of like they're afraid, they're left to their own most basic necessities and instincts. This is, again, is a bit of a stretch, but it did remind me of in Fire Walk With Me, the image of the monkey. Right. The idea of the sort of primate form at the base of a person that when someone is left in the most dire of circumstances, it is that sort of monkey brain animal instinct that's left over. You're beyond the point of thinking and reasoning out of what your situation has required of you. Mm. 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 Earlier, you mentioned that Dale Cooper has one of the cleanest guns in the FBI. Yes. And I thought it was interesting the way you interpret it. And maybe I'm just a big dingus. Uh, you <laughs> interpret it as he doesn't use his gun very often. I interpret it that he doesn't really use his gun. Like, maybe it's trying to push a sense that he's more neat and orderly. But if I had to, like, imagine, mm -hmm. like, being inside that overall situation and overall system, mm -hmm. uh, I imagine that trying to keep it clean would be a, a fun quirk, if you will, rather yeah. than what it seems like his coworker is giving more as an accolade to... Cooper. He, he uses the gun as a very last resort. Yes. I hadn't thought of it that way. I thought of it in terms of meticulousness. Yeah, I thought mm. it in the sense of someone who is very detail-oriented and precise in making sure that his equipment is clean in order proper. Mm -hmm. um, and I think both could be true. I mm -hmm. mean, I think that everything about Cooper's personality we get, I would not be surprised if he spends his free time after a hard day's at work sitting on his bed meticulously cleaning his gun, talking to Diane, as kind of like 
almost a meditative act, but also a thing that he needs to make sure everything he's doing is in proper working condition should the call be made that he needs it. Which also, despite being a really good shot himself, the fact that overall how impactful mm -hmm. like that one death was, yeah, how impactful his instance with Betty was in the past as well. Like whenever it comes to like a potential life being lost with the use of a mm -hmm. firearm. I think that I, I still do lean on like not using it as much as others um, would inside of their own instances. I, I think that's very notable. It also makes instances such as the cartel point later on with um, <laughs> Denise also being a little bit strange because I, I, I almost feel like there's a separate personality that comes out of Cooper with a firearm at one moment. Could you elaborate? Uh, there is a point where with Denise Bryson, mm -hmm. where they are trying to take care of instances uh, beyond the border, if you will. They have to deal with an overall cartel. And in order to save uh, Denise Bryson, it would require the use of things such as grenades, such as uh, overall uh, artillery arms and so mm -hmm. on to try to get... Denise Bryson out and since it's something that's very on the job and it doesn't seem like they're saying any sort of kind things on these individuals that are a part of this cartel as like they're trying to like Cooper's trying to save a life right here mm -hmm. um, just like the fray yep just like the, the fray mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know how the overall uh, body count went and maybe I just like misread something at one uh -huh. point with that uh, but it seems for the most part uh, there was a bit of adrenaline with Cooper when he was uh, recording that final like portion and line. Uh, yeah. When he was finished with that instance, as opposed to what I find to be more compelling with, let's say, for example, even with the death of John Renault, when he's sort of like looking on to uh -huh. John as he's dying out, thanks to Cooper's hand to take one of those lives. So I don't know, maybe there's a bit of me that's uh, a little bit hopeful that maybe he just somehow was able to just injure and just like get like, Denise out rather than like it, this is just a weird instance where Cooper mm -hmm. says I used a gun and I feel good it is it is a bit unclear I, I found the section involving Denise Bryson at the time Dennis Bryson to be a bit rushed and I would have wanted more if you're gonna if you're gonna do something with Denise and the past that that character has with Cooper it would have been nice to get more personality and more time um, and not necessarily like it has to be a big part of the book. It's also like doing more with the space you have. There wasn't a lot of characterization in yeah. what we got. It's just kind of almost feel like they're going through the motions. Scoffrost wanted to make mention of Denise Bryson, but didn't necessarily add to anything we didn't already know about the character. Yes, there's uh, there's very much the existence of Denise Bryson. They are taking Denise Bryson as an overall character, putting uh, them in. And the fact is, is that Denise Bryson is the character probably Cooper spends the most time with out of all the FBI agents yeah. when it comes to these recordings. But there's still um, not much. Not much. And it is kind of weird. Um, there's also a six-year period where the book just mentions that he was assigned to counterintelligence, and the FBI does not acknowledge any tapes from that time period. We do not have that six-year window. And that's especially interesting, I think, too, because that's a very large chunk of his time as an FBI agent that we have no access to in this book. So we don't <laughs> necessarily know what he all went through in there. 
Something again to keep an eye out for if that ever gets elaborated on in the secret history or in the return. If we ever have any indications of those six years, if anything notable happened in those time, because every time we are given privy to things are happening in this guy's <laughs> life. Just a mild correction, just because I wanted to double check the overall book itself. Actually, it turns out that my brain just had the idea of Heavy Return Fire being a part of a potential gun that Dale Cooper did have. That was not the case. Dale Cooper instead propelled a hand grenade, it seems, with an arc of a toss that seemed to not go so well with the overall speed. And said he sort of fumbled with a hand grenade and still was able to get Dennis out of that overall location. So it seems that potentially... Maybe people were harmed along the way, but it seems unlikely that's going to be a similar case to, say, for example, being shot. If you Look, will. again, it weighs on a person's conscience a lot to use the gun to have to kill someone in an FBI mission. But if you have to use a grenade to kill someone, there's no moral <laughs> guilt. There's no conscience. It's perfectly it fine. It still seems like the <laughs> hand grenade was used stri strategically as more of a distraction element, yeah, though. More so. of a distraction. For sure. For sure. So, yeah, still trying to keep that gun clean. Speaking of explosions, Albert Rosenfeld sure's got an explosive personality, wouldn't you say? Not in this book. He's barely no, in this no, book. No, yeah, but exactly. There's like one reference to Albert in the book, and it's to Albert Rosenfeld, spelled felt instead of felt. Like they said, his they pronounced That's they what, typed his name wrong. Yes, no, nah, it might be a case in which it might like, be that case that Dale didn't know how to say his name. Didn't know how to say his name, misdated it. It could be a misspell from Scott Frost specifically. I think it's a typo, because, oh, but there's a way to that fit because it's as heard by Scott Frost. Yeah. He types it down. Scott Frost misheard uh -huh, it. Sure. I, I think I, there's there's easy ways to retcon it. Maybe it's Scott like Rosenfeld could also be like a Pokemon there's in which a, like another character. he's just no no he's like a Pokemon uh, you know like evolves. it's felt in which like he has a full head of hair that's like felt but then it becomes more of a field if you will so uh -huh. he loses the felt and becomes fell. And then in the, the, the Twin Peaks The Return, Albert Rosen Forest. <laughs> Wait, does he get the hair back? Like yes. he goes from full hair to bald head to afro? Yes, like a big old broccoli. <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, there's not much in here. Uh, at one point, Dale Cooper just asks, Diane, what do you know about a special agent named Albert Rosenfeld? And why is he so angry? Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Do you wish there's more, Albert? I... <laughs> I don't think there this is, is a lame answer on my end. I do recognize that. Yeah. But whenever I go into pieces, I'm not like outright thinking yeah. to myself, oh man, I hope to see you. Well, now that you're looking back at it. Though. Now I'm looking back at it. Still the same thing. Yeah. I'm not thinking about that. Uh, I'm not thinking about what I could have had. I, I'm a little bit thinking of what you could have had. Uh -huh. I feel like you don't need a lot. We already know Albert. We get plenty of time with him in the show. It'd just be nice to have a bit more of establishment of their connection because Going by Fire Walk With Me, the way that he talks to Albert, he knows him a bit better. When he enters Twin Peaks, he recommends Albert being more on the ball than Sam Stanley. There's a history between Albert, not necessarily that they're best friends, but that there should be something a little bit more with their characters. Mm. We actually get from Diane, uh, kind of spoil a little bit here, in the Diane tapes, it does talk about his thoughts on the altercations between Albert and Truman. Uh, Cooper does say he's going to back Truman over Albert. So we do know that they're like, on good terms, he respects Albert, but they're not super be best buds forever, and he will, if definitely he thinks Albert's in the wrong, he will take side of Truman and other lo local law enforcement over Albert. Mm -hmm. So I just, I think it would be kind of nice to get a little bit more than just that one-liner, um, but I guess it's better than nothing. You know, a little, a little <laughs> it Albert. shows that the Albert is part of the timeline. He, he exists in the timeline. And same thing for Gordon Cole. Uh, he exists. 
not really that much in the book, even though he appears multiple times. It's mostly just a reference to how Gordon Cole trusts him, and they've known each other for a long time, and they're they're good. Yeah, like I mentioned before, it seems that also Gordon Cole is at the very least connected enough between like Dale, or at the very least gets to know Dale enough that having like a good like speaking relationship with Dale's father is also mm-hmm. in order. So though we don't get a lot of scenes with them, I still find humor in all that. That 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 that, that strange like familiar closeness. If you, yeah, I wonder if Cooper's father was able to sell David Lynch. I'm oh, sorry. I mean, uh, the canonical Twin Peaks character of Gordon Cole. <laughs> because there the is a David Lynch character in Twin Peaks from what these collectible cards, hint, hint, Ooh. have. Don't spoil the card episode. I'm going to spoil the hells out of the card whoa, episode. Whoa, whoa. Um, but they're on, they're on a good enough terms that uh, when Dale is suddenly asked to handle a new mission, it's Gordon Cole directing Dale to go to a place called Deer Meadow. And this is where we get the most uh, obvious, important (laughs) deviation from the rest of the canon in the sense of Fire Walk with me, because this section involves Dale Cooper going to Deer Meadow. There is no Chet Desmond. Sam Stanley is not going there. And at no point is it ever referred to as a Blue Rose case. In fact, the reason that Dale Cooper is asked to go there isn't because he's good with Blue Rose cases or anything involving that. It's because he has a feeling this may be a serial event and none of the other agents in the district have the direct experience with one of those. Mm-hmm. So it's more of just a fact like, yeah, Cooper, well, you seem like you're good for the job. <laughs> that ends up being somewhat of a reality after uh, Chet Desmond just sort of like disapproves. So I consider yeah, no. this section specifically to me, not canon. I, see I, I think at- that this directly contrasts with the, sh- the movie, and I think the movie version is more canon for a variety of reasons. Yes, mind you, there are many details that are still similar when it comes to, say, for example, Deer Road Meadow. For one, the name Deer Road Meadow does come through. The fact is that one of the local law enforcements... It's Deer Meadow, not Deerwood. I'll one day get the <sighs> name correctly. But it's been but many days since last days, time. But one day. Uh, the overall uh, law enforcement, uh, Cable. Mm-hmm. Cable is a very specific name, yep. and it is specifically Cable who is overseeing Deer, uh, Deer Meadow. Yeah. And, and, and the, the understanding that I think I would have here that makes total sense is that originally... Dale Cooper was meant to be there for Deer yeah. Meadow, and then it ended up being changed because, and this is, again, kind of common uh, trivia sort of stuff. Like, I don't know how confirmed confirmed is, but I think it's pretty well established yeah. that Kyle McLaughlin didn't want to be typecast. He wanted to take a break from Twin Peaks. He said no to being in Firewalk with me. That's where we got uh, Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley kind of involved instead as a replacement. Mm-hmm. Then Dale Cooper, sorry, then Kyle McLaughlin did decide to go do it and be Dale Cooper. Yeah. And that's when they added Dale in for the few scenes that he's in, both in Deer Meadow and in like the dream sequences. Yeah. And the FBI office. So you end up with this weird situation that I think when the book was being written, Scott Frost might have been told that in Fire Walk With Me, coming up soon, that was already being planned, that they were going to have a Sheriff Cable and Dale Cooper interaction. Yeah. But, but nope. that got changed later and the final product ended up being different. Again, given between the two versions, I would consider the official story to be <laughs> Firewalk With Me. This is the unofficial story. Absolutely. I also enjoy the fact that Teresa Banks still is someone who works at a diner, but it's not Irene's. Like, no. it's not Irene's diner. Uh, it's a Cross it, River Cafe. It, and I don't think it's night. 
No, the owner is a man named Weller, and we don't have hardly any descriptions <laughs> on him. I find this this way of describing the events of Deer Meadow to be a lot less interesting than what we got in Fire Walk with me. Because oh, yeah. For one, I can read a, this within 10 minutes. Yeah, it's not a 30-minute section of the movie. I would say <laughs> 10 minutes is honestly taking your time with it. Yeah. It's, pretty, it's pretty sparse, and you don't really get a lot of detail on the people, the events, the atmosphere. I think one of the biggest strengths of Deer Meadow and Fire Walk with me is the atmosphere of it being almost an anti-Twin Peaks, that this is a place that's cold and uninviting and unwelcoming. The best we get over here is that Dale Cooper makes note that they don't have great pie. That's about the extent of That's what, where it's cursed. Ah, just, uh, That's the anti-Twin Peaks. Yeah. The, a place where pies go to die. This is where the pies go to hell. Whoa. I don't remember if this is all new or if this is repeated from the movie as well, but Dale learns that Teresa Banks was born in Tacoma, Washington to an Ellen and Tony Banks that at age 12, her parents were killed in a car accident and that she became a ward of the state until age 15 when she ran away from a state facility and then was not found again, basically off the record, until her body was found more recently. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know if that information is a repeat or if that is new. I can't recall specifically them mentioning her parenting and kind of like where she came from. I don't recall unless you have any sort of like super secret special information, just because for the most part, Teresa Banks was just sort of like living her own life a bit alone. And though we do get like small snippets from time to time of her life, she becomes the new Laurel Palmer figure in many ways, except mm-hmm. like not like revered kindly across the world, if you will. Again, just anti-Twin who- Peaks as an anti-Laura. Yes. Instead of the, the person that everyone loved and everyone cares about, it's someone no one acknowledges existed. And so she disappears, if you will, a lot of her life being obscured, with the exception of, say, for example, if you take to a canon, this piece of information. A little weird. I mean, I get what they're trying to do. I get what Scott Frost is trying to do to link this into the show, but it also feels timeline kind of weird. Right around the time that Dale leaves Deer Meadow, he has a strange dream where he's dancing with a tiny little man and a very beautiful young woman. And it's like very... <laughs> There's no room to interpret what? that. Like, it's no room to no, interpret that. No, let me see. Okay. Um, mm. Little Nikki. Little Nikki. And Andy. Andy. Mm-hmm. So, what feels weird about this to me, though, is that the dream sequence that we see, uh, Dale Cooper's not dancing with the little man, first of all. And that happens either in the international pilot or I think the more official version, it happens in like episode two, right? And then he wakes up and calls Harry and all that stuff. So this appears to be a different dream, yeah. but in the same like environment. And I guess timeline wise, this could line up either right before Laura died or like right around Let's the time Laura like died. play around with timelines when it comes to the Red Room because by the gods, yeah. it can be any timeline. I just think it's really weird and a little unnecessary to like have this obvious call to this dream thing when we already get a very similar dream. I don't know. To but, me, it, it, to me, it cheapens it because when Dale Cooper has that dream of the little man and Laura, and I like to believe it's the first time he's had this dream. I don't like to believe it's a sequel. But on the same token, <laughs> like incorporating something like Deer Road Manu- Meadow and maybe, Deer Meadow. Yep. And being told, hey, uh, we might want to try to be considered on, like, a Red Room instance inside of here. Like, we had, like, at the very least flirtations of older woman as well as the child who lived inside of a trailer not too far from Teresa Banks. Mm -hmm. We had instances that would say that likely... I mean, the Chalfont situation. The Chalfonts, yes. That likely we had our 
agent that ended up going there inside the right. film likely ended up in a Red Room instance. This is probably just cementing that there is that sort of I, like mythical I get quality you, here. But it feels like the laziest way to do it because it's like, <laughs> oh, it's like the thing you already saw. Like, oh, it's it's like that dream that's in the show, but it's not, but it yeah. kind of is. And I feel like that's such a like weak thing because it's not like there's uninteresting dreams in the, the series. There are some interesting dreams that happen in the book. Uh, this is the least creative one. This, this is just a rehash something we've already seen before. But there's also the course in which we can also say if we do believe that to be the Laura Palmer as the girl and not like the girl being interpreted as potentially Teresa yeah, Banks being right. there. It could go into the idea that uh, time is funky when it comes towards the Red Room. Yeah, so, as if we needed more evidence of that. Wait, like, we have more evidence now, but yeah. in the past, we you're, did not You're not, not going to sell evidence. me on this dream. I'm not trying to sell you. I'm just trying to at least put a defensive stance on why it might potentially be there and what it does. Mm, I feel it deserves no defense. <laughs> it does not deserve anything. Uh, then we race to the end of the book, and... Cooper is obviously sent over to Washington State. He's oh, informed wow. that there's a young woman wrapped in plastic, and he is headed to a little town called Twin Peaks. I'm surprised they didn't go for the thing of just having the last recording being the opening line that he says while he's entering the town. I'm surprised they didn't go for that. Part of me, even though like it'd be fan service, part of me kind of wishes they would have done that. But that's to have the a thing. complete ending there. Yeah, but at the same token, like it's at the bottom of the page on the last page and the very next page, you end up seeing that there's advertisements for all the other Twin Peaks okay, material. But when, when the book's so what being... I'm trying to say is that we just saved like a full uh -huh. page right there. Think about how many things are printed. Maybe how many a... trees have to die for your fan service, Khalil? Maybe maybe originally he had <laughs> put it in there and then the publisher said, no, no, no. For our page layout, we're going to remove that. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> The second to last entry, I think, is kind of notable, though. Right before we get to that, uh, him leaving, it says, quote, unable to sleep, have set up all night looking out at San Francisco Bay. Diane, if a person, as one theory goes, is chosen to live in a particular time for one specific reason, then why am I here now? What moment in history is my life destined to intersect with? Or has it already happened? And I just didn't understand that that was my moment. My mother, Marie, and Caroline. Those are the names on the signpost past which I've traveled. But where is the next one, and whose name will be on it? My own, Wyndham Earls, or another? Diane, as Groucho Marx once said, Harpo, you talk too much. Good night, <laughs> Diane. I like that as kind of an ending. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a little bit more teasing with Twin Peaks, but as the second to last, as a good ending kind of note. But this idea of why is Dale Cooper alive at this time and place, if you were to give an answer to Dale Cooper... Why do you think his specific reason for being there then and now, why was Dale Cooper alive when he was? Well, when he was alive when he was, was likely because this is, as I mentioned before, likely him being set onto a singular path towards what would end up being his own personal destruction and potentially his own Garambosia if mm -hmm. you will. Garmon Bozia. Yep. One well, day. Professor, I don't enjoy correcting you, but I'm just making sure because I think we're going to talk about Garmon Bozia again in the uh -huh, future. So I'm just, uh -huh, you know, uh-huh, 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 Deerwood Meadow. So what I'm trying to say <laughs> is that likely, uh, the I would like to be optimistic and say that no matter what, that this is just an instant, this like fate factors only so much into life that it, there's only... The fact that he is alive is something that's going to keep him up, and his Groucho Marx quote is very nice for this overall instance because I do think that he is going into a brain tunnel, rabbit hole, if you will. But as far as the evidence 
shows he is being led to Twin Peaks. Yeah, I, I, I believe less optimistically that if there is a canonical reason for his existence, based on everything we've seen so far from Twin Peaks, I would say it's because the Black Lodge wants him, Bob wants him. I would say that he is being like dangled a carrot on a stick, which is Laura Palmer, she's the carrot. Yeah. And he is being drawn directly into the Black Lodge. Wyndham Earl's also kind of inviting him in. Yeah. And, and I would say that the end goal is what we saw at the end of season two. If I were to go with everything we have so far, it feels like that is most likely why Dale Cooper is alive when he's alive is to be a tool of the Black Lodge for whatever is going to happen after the end of season two. However, however, the other side of me wants to just say the idea that maybe there is no predestination at all, right? Maybe there is no sense of fate or predestination in Twin Peaks and there may be active forces trying to manipulate you, but that doesn't mean you're doomed to it. I'd like to believe in free will here. I'd like to believe that Dale Cooper may have had a pathlet for him but that he could have tried to deviate. It's just that this book, this book in particular, yep. keeps destroying and burning down every alternative route. He mm -hmm. is being sidelined into a canal. He cannot deviate and change direction. Mm -hmm. So I think My Life, My Tapes is giving good evidence to the idea that he does not have that free will, <laughs> but I'd like to believe that Dale Cooper could have passed the test at season two. I like to believe that Dale Cooper could have in some way not ended up how he did at the end of season two, but maybe not. Paralleling his life with tapes, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a complex mechanism. It uses electricity. It's something that overall winds about and is complicated. But at the very end of the day, it is a singular strip of black, if you will, mm. that winds and winds and winds until it gets to the very end. And it's one-sided by nature. Uh, there is no sense of trying to communicate back with it. It is just speaking into the void. I was about to say, it's not one-sided. You can flip it to side B. <laughs> okay, But <laughs> I know what you mean. It's fair. It's fair. There's two timelines then. <laughs> but still, regardless, you are still met with that black tape. No, that's a really excellent way to word it. I, I appreciate that, Professor. Extending this book further and applying it to the series. Yes. And if Fire Walk With Me, if it feels right, Audrey is one of the characters that Dale Cooper is involved with in the show that obviously Audrey's not in this book. But I do think that you can use this book then to reinterpret the scenes with Audrey. Yes. Um, so kind of thinking about Audrey and thinking of Dale Cooper's connections with Audrey. Yes. What does this book kind of make you think about when it comes to that character? As we mentioned a little bit earlier, if you will, it puts Cooper in the light of April, mm -hmm. if you will. He is the older, more experienced person. He's the older, more experienced person going about his own ways. Uh, she is the more younger, more sexually active, more uh, interested in like what's happening with overall Cooper and then tries to overall engage it one form or another with him at the, which overall ends up inside that scene with the bed, if you will. And Cooper is the one who has to just sort of like sit down and just sort of in a more mature, like maybe mm -hmm. like in a way of trying to even supersede or do things in which he wishes maybe April would have done just sits down and says, look, we're just going to have a talk. I'm going to grab us some food. We're just going to, we're just going to, like, work all this out, all right? We're just going to work things out right here, right now. You got to wonder, though, what was in the back of Cooper's mind during that because what we hear him do say, what we see him do is very professional, very friendly, very, uh, you know, good. Yes. But the way this book makes him sound is he's constantly, like, thinking about sex. When he's presented with this woman that he finds attractive, who, based on information we would have, is 18, and she is in his bed, like, naked, 
you got to wonder, did Cooper feel desire that he had to fight or did, was he not interested? Now, there's multiple areas in which when we were back working through like the interviews and so on with uh, the actors and so on, there's mm-hmm. plenty of places in which I like disagree with Kyle McLaughlin. But if there's yeah. one thing that I do think I agree, especially with him being inside of the character at the time, is that looking at Audrey, yeah, there was absolutely temptation, but there's also was an understanding of a boundary to be right. set if you will. So um, I kind of like look at it and kind of respect it in that sort of light when it comes to that sort of connection and kind of take that as my own. I'd, I'd like to think Dale it. Cooper grew because I think that if Twin Peaks would have been his first assignment, let's say the whole Wyndham Earl thing hadn't happened. He gets out of the FBI, he's sent directly to Twin Peaks yeah. and he's young FBI agent Cooper. I think he would have gone for Audrey. Yeah. Based on everything we know about him. I, I would not be surprised. Fair. Maybe he would have the memory of Agent Robin on his mind. He doesn't want to hurt Audrey, and he's worried that she could get hurt. But I think he's still susceptible to it at that time. If we want, maybe he's learned from the Caroline instances. Maybe he's learned how to be better about this. As is just another example, like if we were to take like uh, the Robin section out, if you will, bloop, plop out yep. that section. If we still like, we can still consider Caroline's moment, but it seems like the Robin moment was very defining on his overall professionalism. Yes on the outset in which I think he t- continues to carry on with these. And he, he's not perfect. And he still lanes back and forth. I mean, he, he let himself get close to Caroline. He lets himself get close to Annie in ways that could jeopardize them. Yes. He almost does that with Audrey, but he's aware of it. And he does blame himself. I remember when, when he ca- when he rescues Audrey from one eyed Jacks, he blames himself for what's going on to some degree. You can see it and hear it in a way he presents himself. Yes. So there is still that sense of, he realizes he almost made that mistake again. He just didn't let it get as far this time. Mm -hmm. He is making gradual improvements. There are parallels between Cooper and Audrey. Um, Audrey's not uninterested in becoming a detective. You can can read how much you think that's uh, genuine or not or what the motivations are. I think a lot of it's escapism for her. I think she wants to go off on grand adventures. I think it's like... We see Denise Bryson. She gets impressed by the idea that a woman could be an FBI agent. That's one of Audrey's first reactions to Denise. Mm. Is that sort of what? You know what I want. What? This is oh, one thing I, know. I wanted. You, you yeah. know what I want. Say it anyway for those who might not have caught the episode prior where this was said. I still respect Twin Peaks as an overall train. Do you? I respect it Choo-choo. in the path that I received. Choo-choo. But whenever I hear about things going bad with Audrey... Mm-hmm. I still put up the point that ideas like this, this little Chekhov's gun that was sort of hung up, if Audrey was... shouldn't hang up guns. Uh, we should hang up guns, apparently, because that's what they did with this uh, instead of using it, uh, was to potentially bring Audrey into a light of a special agent instead of, like, pushing this overall romantic love or the necessity mm-hmm. of the romantic love. Maybe that's what was used for the sake of, like, showing off Cooper's flaw if we were to, like use this book to sort of rhyme with Cooper. I can understand that. I can um, empathize with that. But still, if I wanted a story about love, I don't mind the friendship love that we get from, say, for example, Truman, or the potential one we could have received from Audrey trying to become a special yeah. agent or connect with Cooper in that they have great chemistry, and chemistry does not necessarily imply romantic. Yes. Chemistry can be that they have a really good partnership as friends, and I think that that would have been something cool to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the parallels, though, Audrey is interested in becoming an FBI agent when she meets Denise Bryson, thinks that, okay, that's an option for her. Yes. And she obviously does some investigating into Laura herself. Um, a lot of it seems more stemmed in escapism rather than a sense of duty. I don't think she has the sort of faith and trust in the establishment of the law office the way that Cooper off and on would have. Yeah. 
I think the biggest difference between them is their families in the sense that Audrey came from a family of wealth and that was very, very, very uh, dysfunctional, Mm -hmm. broken. Mm -hmm. And thinking about, again, the contrast of mother and father figure, Dale Cooper's mother, she passed away young, but she was an active part of his life. She was very supportive. He could go to her for things. It does not appear that Sylvia Horn is at all supportive of her daughter, Audrey, from mm-hmm. everything we've seen of Sylvia, but also the it, fact that we barely see Sylvia. She is an absent presence. Yes. Then you compare the fathers. I don't think you have to say too much to understand the difference between Benjamin Horn and Dale Cooper's father. Mm-hmm. Um, they might both be prone to flights of fancy. They mo- both might be businessmen in their own way. But mm-hmm. I think the intense to which they have the way they respond to their children, the way they connect to their children Mm -hmm. could not be more vastly different. So I think that Cooper and Audrey have similarities. They are both prone to escape, both prone to adventure, both trying to seek something bigger than their lives before they grew up with their families. Both are seeking love and trying to seek this sort of emotional attachment and sexuality. But when you look at their family circumstances, when you look at maybe some of the things that have just come through their development I, I do see interesting differences and separations too, which mm-hmm. goes back to heighten what you said previously about the importance of mothers, fathers, and families in the series of Twin Peaks yes. is that I really feel like that family background was the burden that Audrey had to bear. And at the end of the day, I think she just wants to get away from it. And that's probably her motivation more than anything else. I think that uh, there's a bit of me that can agree with the overall idea at the very least early on, but I do think that there is still that way and tug that comes with the overall family matters in which she feels almost compelled to try to help and take care. Yeah. Let's bring up like Confederate Ben or let's sort of like bring up everything that's sort of She does go to Miss Twin Peaks and speaks on for father's cause. Yes. There, there is a sense of that. And a lot of that deals with the hope that maybe he can reform, mm-hmm. that he can change. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier the sort of friendship with Harry Truman. I feel like that gets recontextualized by the book as well. Yeah. In that the book barely has any close male relationships. It has some college buddies. It has some light friendships, but they're hardly even a thing in the book. Uh, Denise as Dennis or Albert or Gordon, they're not really close to Cooper. There's implications that there were instances outside of the tapes that may have been shared between like Cooper and these people, if you will, yeah. because they do like m- emphasize like the overall character of Cooper, the overall, like what they see inside of Cooper, what they've experienced with Cooper. We don't get to really fully explore that. But I no. do think it's, it's very arguable with the book that, Cooper's relationship and friendship with Harry Truman is the strongest friendship he's ever had with a man. Like, I I really don't think he's had that many positive male influences from the book. Not a lot of negative ones either, but just not a lot of them. And the the two comparison points I would make is that this is where I wish Wyndham Earl had been a little bit more in the book as before the madness may have set in. Because... Wyndham Earl was Cooper's former partner. He got along very well with the sort of mentorship role. There might be a parallel between his partnership with Wyndham Earl and later his partnership with Harry Truman. It's just not there enough to establish if there's a connection like that. Like, Mm -hmm. is there a part of Cooper that connects to Harry because he thinks back to how it was when he first was partners with Wyndham Earl? Yeah. Maybe. I just don't think there's enough of a parallel set up by the book. It's so far a bit of a flaw with the overall structure because if we take something like Diane with My Life, My Tapes and how many times Truman is sort of like brought up, yep. it still is more frequent than a lot of people inside of it. Yeah. But I still think that Wyndham Earl is still brought up more in this book than those tapes from Diane as just a general like juggling comparison on 
They're just such different products, though. Because, like, 40, they are, they are 40 minutes products. of tapes versus... It is, but at the yeah. same time, if we take it into, like, a sense of, like, a somewhat canon using Scott Frost as the overall ghost writer for the tapes, using yeah. the overall uh, areas that we have for these tapes, it's... Yeah, it, we it's don't still... see everything. We only hear the tapes. So maybe Cooper had a really great best friend throughout 10 years of his life. We know that um, Marie's brother is listed as one of his best friends. We just never actually have any conversations between yes. Marie's brother and him. We don't actually know they're friends. Yes. We're just told they are. I, I just set, want to bring it up for the sake that I can be compelled to see the connection with Wyndham Earl. It's just still we are left with the mm -hmm. flaw of the structure in which we don't get that substance. What I think is more compelling then is to compare Cooper's connection to Harry Truman to Cooper's connection with his father. I, I don't know necessarily the age difference. I do believe Harry Truman is intended to be older than Dale Cooper. Yeah. Uh, Dale Cooper being a, a younger face in the community. But less than the age gap, it's more that I think he looks at Harry Truman as someone who may be very responsible, someone who may be someone to confide in and talk to, yeah. who has taken a life before the same way that Dale... Um, can relate to his father. I remember when uh, Dale Cooper first uh, killed someone on duty and how it affected him. We talked about that. He also talked to his father about that, and there was a sort of commiserating, not necessarily stated outright, but implied mm -hmm. to be because of the war, that Dale's father can relate on that aspect. Mm -hmm. These more serious topics they can connect on. Yes. I do think there's a parallel there, and I think even more than that, less to a person, we know that Growing up, Dale Cooper looked up to these great detectives and these great heroes and these movie stars who epitomize the sort of valor and, and virtue. I think Harry Truman is just such a clear example to someone like Dale of a good law enforcement example. Someone who isn't cynical, isn't corrupted. They're someone dependable, reliable, um, honest. And I think that so much of what Dale Cooper sees in the town of Twin Peaks could be embodied by just Sheriff Truman. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that their connection and their friendship is is interesting to look at in light of My Life, My Tapes. So that's Truman. Yes. I would also say that from the show, like now that I'm thinking about characters from the show in relation to the book, narrowing down the entire cast of Twin Peaks down to who does Dale actually talk to? You know, he doesn't talk to Big Ed that often unless he just happens to be on a mission with him for the Bookhouse Boys. <laughs> I don't really see them interact. Whereas Hawk might be actually one of, I would say, Dale's friends. I, I don't think you can say that about most of the characters in Twin Peaks because he actually talks to him off duty. They're, they're having a drink together. He'll talk to Hawk about like spirituality, talk about yeah. sort of even their loves, their love lives at the shooting practice mm -hmm. he will talk to hawk and he trusts hawk with the oven mitts during the rock throwing competition <laughs> um what do you think of the friendship between hawk and dale cooper with the book in mind uh with the book in mind i suppose i haven't really gotten as much to perceive with it if you will just because for the most part there are elements of cooper that are just still blatant inside the overall show that i can see with his overall uh desire and sort of interest in the spirituality it is um i do know that his overall interest in people that he'll be able to bounce off of when it comes to this little spiritual mindset. I think that talk is probably one of the better examples. Hawk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did I, say I think you said talk. I heard talk. <laughs> um, but no, in, in truth, like if there's anything I can overall see potentially like Hawk being one of these little forwards at the beginning of a chapter, if you will, oh, yeah. do, do you have any sort of like examples of like instances inside the book itself for when it comes to, 
to me, it kind of connects to the emphasis with the father with uh, Native Americans and indigenous yeah. peoples in that we get not only his father bringing home the random Native American man for, for Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving yeah. but then also the signs at Mount Rushmore that give the land back to the Sioux. Yeah. Even if his father may have gone about them in a strange way, there is that sort of intentionality that his father may have brought Dale up as a child, kind of respecting and revering the cultures that were here before the colonizers. Yeah. Um, so I think there's that element to it. Yeah. It seems that perhaps that is a case in which Dale Cooper being brought up onto it might have some external sort of like factors in which like we don't see it that is present from the book that causes Cooper more action inside of those realms. Um, but for the most part, I'm just seeing that more so as like what his father does. I also think there's a bit of an anthropological side to Coop, though, as it yeah. is where we know that he went and traveled the world. We don't get all the details of it, but he talks about like walking across coals and doing different spiritual things. All right. So I feel like as someone who's interested in different cultures and different ways of life and viewing the world. Mm-hmm. I do think that Cooper would be a naturally interesting person for Dale to talk to. I mean, as far as people with insights such as Cooper's, if you will, or like being mm-hmm. able to explore those little, little bits of insight. I'm, I'm very thankful that he decided to talk. Uh, it seems uh, well enough to Hawk in these instances, instead of having even more Jacoby time for his overall insights yeah, I, and I don't, uh, thoughts I, on the world. And I don't think Dale Cooper is friends with Jacoby. I, I don't I, think so either. I think, you know, I think, I, I, the I think that there is like a them, distinction between these. I two honestly people. think there's probably disdain. I from yeah. like the because like he meets Jacoby at the cemetery where Jacoby admits to not caring about people. Yeah, he has like initially interrogations with Jacoby where Jacoby's really dodgy and he's just doing the weird golf ball trick. He's, yeah, Jacoby's just the worst and when when dale first meets him jacoby's fingering the the hula girl and the tie so like a lot of reasons that dale would not <laughs> like jacoby whatsoever yeah and knowing that knowing that dale cooper was almost a psychiatrist well going into psychology he had an interest in working with patients we we know that from the betty narrative yeah i feel like because he can connect maybe with the sort of wanting to help people and being around people that have mental health issues, meeting someone like Jacoby who flat out does not care, who flat out abuses his power. I feel like this podcast, like I, I feel like uh, there's plenty of people who look at Jacoby and maybe interesting, maybe interested in maybe overall, like find a very uh, nice, not nice in that. Okay. Here's the, here's what I'm trying to get. At. I feel like this podcast is slowly turning onto <laughs> the dunk on Jacoby podcast. I actually like Jacoby. I do like Jacoby. I, I, I he's not a good person. He's not a good person. But he, he also admits that what he's not. What was the last thing that we've said something kind about Jacoby? Uh, maybe I said he has cool room decor when he <laughs> when his wife his wife was in there doing That's the, what I'm getting the at. golf the guided hypnosis thing. That was kind of this neat. is someone that like inside of the Welcome to Twin Peaks book. If you take the overall ideas from it, can yeah. like. Like timelines be damned, yeah. but if you take the ideas from it to be canon, this is a man who will openly throw his criticisms into a published book. Yeah, that's kind of funny. I like Jacoby <laughs> more than I like Doctor Hayward. I'll say that. So I'll gladly, gladly yell about Doc Hayward. Regardless, um, putting the damnable doctors yeah. aside, the, the gifted and the damned. I, I, I also want to propose the fact that Hawk is everyone's best friend. Like Hawk's the yeah, most dependable he, he's, person. He's in incredibly Twin Peaks. reliable. He's incredibly reliable. Uh, I don't feel like Dale Cooper is necessarily friends with Andy. I think he's acquaintances with Andy. I think he's like workplace pals, but I don't think they hang out outside of work. I think that. What's your vibe? I I think that from time to time, like he'll take care of like setting up the coffee, if you will, while Andy grabs the donuts. 
mm-hmm. if you will. And that's the extent of their like full relationship in which they'll like be around each other, help about. It's like, hey, Andy, how's it going? Have a nice day. But I never get the vibe in which there's going to be like a like there's going to be a deep arc or sort of like shift or like arm in arm. I've got your back and you've got mine with Andy. I think it's in my mind because Dale Cooper doesn't have that sort of sharp intellect to talk up to. Like, I don't think he's got someone he can muse about spirituality stuff like he does with Hawk. But I also don't think he's got that sort of like dependability of someone even like Sheriff Truman Andy doesn't seem really concerned necessarily with society at large, with morality, with goodness. Is he even part of the Bookhouse Boys? I never I, really thought about it before, but I don't think he is because Hawk and Big Ed are for sure. Yeah, we. I don't know. James if, is. I, I don't think he has the patch on. No. No, I don't think Andy. Andy is like he's a he's nice, he's friendly, but he he obviously doesn't have it in him even to like see a dead body. Like it 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 affects him way too strongly. We're here to ward off evil within the realm of Twin Peaks. Who? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think Andy necessarily is a is a friend of Dale Cooper's, but mm. they probably get along just fine. Probably. Yeah. Meanwhile, if we want to like think on that sort of like intellectual level, there's also an example inside the book that does uh, further contextualize um, items within the series, and that would have to be a comment from the overall nurse, if you will, um, in which, uh, as mentioned prior, she's just like absolutely fantastic in Cooper's mind. He sees her as an overall tutor. He sees her as an amazing archer. It like, it seems like there was like a deep connection that happened with this unnamed nurse who was never mentioned mm-hmm. again. And for female characters inside of this overall book, uh, that's a very, very, very significant rarity to mm-hmm. speak so high. And yet like she just disappears into the background. Uh, but regardless, uh, she presses that Cooper should probably like try to test his overall body and just sort of like train his body so that it can keep up with his, his overall mind if you will to and, and that overall makes sense it does go deeper into some of the experimentation that he does in the book but i think it also like in instances when you see him sort of like doing like intense exercises or stretching or just hanging off from the sides of the of doors if you will mm-hmm. just his morning routines. I, I I can see like those sort of like ideas being very impactful with him. And I, I, I think it's a fun sort of like additional piece of personal canon that I like to <laughs> shove into Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. He does definitely have those sort of exercises that help train his mind as well as his body that this might be the root of that as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I think the book gives some origins for his gambling. Um, it's not quite the level of like a gambling addiction, although he does admit that it could go that route. It seems like aside from alcohol, gambling is the other vice that he could be dabbling in. If yeah. things went a bit darker with this character, uncle Al gives Dale advice. That seems questionably, uh, not a good <laughs> thing to do. If you want to, you know, not get into fights mm-hmm. and not get accused of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uncle Al gives Dale advice. And then also Dale gets banned at one point from local casinos cause he's card counting. So Dale's like sharpness and intuition, <laughs> make him a really good gambler, which, but they also can get him into hot water. It can. Like he puts up the argument that like, it's just a simple mathematical equation. I don't see why I'm getting banned from this. Yeah. But you know what? I'm going to take this money, give it to my parents. So at least he's like not doing anything crazy. Like it seems Al would do and just disappear at the end of the night. But it does explain then when he goes to one eyed Jack's a bit more of his style, how he's good with gambling, how maybe mm. when he got the opportunity to go to One-Eyed Jacks, it kind of was dabbling a bit more in an advice yeah. to, to Cooper's side. 
um, in an I area mean, that kind of encourages that vice? I mean, I don't see it as a vice personally, just because, again, that idea of a mathematical equation, I think that he's just like, feeling more and more on the job, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's something that you can put a bit of confidence in, but I think that the example of giving all that money away um, shows an example of him using his talents, but also using it for the betterment of things around him. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. Whenever I think of something such as a vice, it oftentimes is just trying to feed something in Cooper. It just seems like another day for him. Mm hmm that's fair. That's fair. I, I think, yeah, in the, in the grand scheme of things, he doesn't delve too much into the gambling to the point of it becoming, like, inordinate in his life or yeah. subsuming his other responsibilities. Um, he doesn't use it necessarily to take advantage of people, mm -hmm. although he definitely could. He could. He, he's, he's very sharp when it comes to it. I feel like the majority of damage that Dale Cooper causes is not necessarily intentional. It's because the guy seems to have a curse. He seems to be, like, a walking damned figure. And we, we've talked about it throughout the whole book, but I do think it relates to the series as well. There's that John Renault quote that you and I both go back to all the time, mm -hmm. that John Renault says things used to be simple before Dale Cooper got here. And this idea kind of teased out through moments like that, that Twin Peaks always had darkness. Yeah. Twin Peaks always had problems. Yeah. But that things started to get worse when Dale Cooper showed up. Things started to escalate more. And I think there's a lot of debates you could have about whether that is true or not, because what Dale was doing is removing things like the Renault family's, you know, drug crimes. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to get to the bottom of what happened with Laura. If Dale Cooper hadn't been around, would they have found Leland? Would they have <laughs> maybe not? Cause the way that the way that Dale operated was so outside of the other methods that the police force used. Yeah. It's a question of, well, how long would it have taken them to find Leland? would he have even been in the town anymore mm -hmm. if, if, if it was left to the law enforcement's own way. So, mm -hmm. you know, is Dale a net positive, net negative? It's debatable. But going to the idea of the finale, going to the idea of what Bob is able to do by infiltrating into Dale Cooper, yeah. Um, there, there seems to be this sense throughout the book that Dale Cooper might be cursed. And if you want to take that idea and run with it, you can see a lot of pain and suffering in Garmin Bosia that Dale Cooper ends up indirectly causing just by being around. And mm -hmm. the dude's got a bit of a body count unintentionally from all of the people who end up like going mad or dying around him, mm -hmm. especially women through no like direct cause of his own, but it just kind of keeps happening to the guy. Mm. over and over and over again that death follows him like that old man said seeing it in his face <laughs> even if cooper doesn't mean it it just keeps happening uh there's another dream that is in the book where dale cooper sees a man with no legs sitting across from dale in a green chair and the man says nothing at first then begins to laugh and tell dale he can't run it is right behind him, and it is sure to kill him. There you go. There's another resident that's not a overall short man with another no, woman. No, I like this room. dream better because it's go. different. <laughs> this is a better dream. Quantifiably <laughs> better dream. But it also fits kind we'll of the, again. the idea of a lot of these spirits that they have some sort of, again, <laughs> like there's angles where this may not be a good thing, but the Lodge spirit has a physical deformity. There's something okay. different about this person's physique, physique than most people. And, you know, we have a one-armed man. Here we have a person with no legs. Now, mind you, that's not always the case unless we are to take the idea that Bob is not. Um, but I'm part. saying, I mean, okay, I understand what you're getting at, yeah. but we have the giant. We have, we the, have the really we, we small do, man. We, we have the one-armed man. We have, this we this fits a pattern. It does fit a pattern. It's just that if we are to take a pattern, we have to accept or understand that there might be something specific about Bob that creates the exception, though. Uh, yeah, maybe. 
<laughs> it's also unclear if Bob is even the final form because we have the representation of Mike in the Red Room is always the same as Philip Gerard. Mm-hmm. That's kind of confusing because Bob seems to possess people and Mike seems to possess people. But when we see Bob, it's Bob. We don't see Leland. When we see Mike, we see the same person as Philip Gerard. <laughs> if you get what I'm saying, I get it does seem saying. a little weird where we don't even necessarily know, is Bob the original form or is this the form of someone he had previously taken over? I think it's just over? a cool thing in which like, since they're separated, like it has to just be where the one arm just touches upon Philip Gerard yeah. in order to make the full form. I... As much as I would like a cool little flashy animated scene in which, like, they become fusion and then yeah. we see ultra version, the full man. Um, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I also <laughs> think that there's a lot, obviously, in this book with fire. Yeah. With the smell of gasoline that could connect back to Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah. Honestly, um, not only do we have just, like, fire, 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 that ends up happening inside the book as well as Twin Peaks. Fire walk with me. Ha, ha, ha. But there's also... Moments where, like, there's a very specific point that ends up happening through the course of the first season that we, I believe, get more answers probably in the second season. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it is towards the end. Where the smell of gasoline is very notable because of the overall uh, little oil deposit that seems to be delving us deeper into something such as the Red Room Black Lodge. Glastonbury Grove. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, the smell of gasoline is something that also is accompanied inside of this book, if you will, if they continue to use the overall themes, yada, yada. Um, the fact is, is that the smell of gasoline is introduced along with Lena, if you will, when it comes to departing from her overall home, if you will, when we discover that she's an arsonist, if you will, she's the one who causes fire mm-hmm. uh, before having uh, Dale if you will, engage with her, breaking her celibacy after, like, the instances with her mother, and then go straight into sex, if you will, which leads to an overall, what seems to be, at the very least, injuring a bull. I don't know if it was a death, was it? For? For when the car crashed. No, I mean, Lena went and, like, later had the whole thing where she thought that Dale was someone else and then ended up, like, leaving town. Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, she goes, like... Yeah, no one dies. They just go into a herd of cows. They go into a herd of cows. I was wondering if they killed a herd of cows. Oh, like, that the, the cow death, you mean? I don't think yeah. it's ever clarified. I don't okay, think. yeah. Regardless, it results in an overall accident. I feel like it's um, it talked results... about like it's comedy because it sounds kind of silly that when they were having sex, they reversed into a herd of cows. Yeah. I feel like it's comedic, but it's also like, yeah, this could have gone horribly wrong. It has a lot of areas that could have been gone horribly wrong i think that at the very least the use of specifically the smell of gasoline i know that they were in a vehicle but after oil but along with that sense of fire it's hard not to believe that we're getting more introduction to bob grasping around to a potential not so well off an individual such as lena if you will it it Mm -hmm. seems like a complication in a relationship that could have been touched by these mystical natures, whatever you want to compare them to, whatever you think that they parallel with within the real world. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's crunchy, to say the least. One could argue that Diane, the Twin Peaks tapes of Agent Cooper, is also crunchy. It would be physically crunchy, yes. It's a, it's a cassette tape. Mm-hmm. Or it's a computer device or phone device for Audible. Anyway, crunchy. Not whatever you're, whatever you're going to use, it's going to be crunchy. Not sponsored by any of them. If you've been listening to us talk about things this entire time, and you were secretly only here for Diane, um, thank you, thank you. We we've obviously sprinkled in some comments about Diane. Uh now we're going to transition 
to just talking about Diane for a little bit. This one, this one goes out to you specifically. This goes out for you. Who was I... waiting so patiently for so long <laughs> to talk about Diane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For some context, uh, Diane, the Twin Peaks tapes of Agent Cooper, compiles many of the recorded diary entries of Dale Cooper to his assistant Diane. They're featured in the first season and the first episode of the second season. That's as far as this goes. Along with some new special recorded entries written, again, by Scott Frost, uncredited. There's also some entries in the original broadcast that are not included on the tapes. So this is not every time he speaks into the tape recorder from season one. It is just most or a portion of them. Yes. Uh, I assume to try to create some form of a narrative. I I, I hesitate to call what this is a narrative, Mm -hmm. but to make it not super random, I guess. Yes. The tape begins with a monologue taking place before the pilot in which Cooper discusses his impending trip to Twin Peaks continuing with the initial monologue heard in the pilot, and then eventually concluding with the day that he was shot at the end of season one, going into season two. For his work, Kyle McLaughlin was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Spoken Word Performance. Hmm. And you can listen to the 45-minute collection on Audible through Amazon, not sponsored. It's like five bucks. Yeah. So, there's a few things in here that are kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, we get early on, his process of buying a new tape recorder along with going to the visit. So which, new town, new tape recorder, moving on, upgrading. Yeah, which I think is very notable because I think for the most part, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of his tape recorders beforehand were gifts, if you will. Yeah. This is his first Buy yourself physical. <laughs> majority of them, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, if not all, I'm pretty sure his majority uh, were given to him by his father, if you will. So now grabbing a tape recorder that's specifically from him, I, I, I can see a degree of separation that starts to come from that, especially especially with what happened with you know the marriage and everything. Uh-huh. And for all you Dick Tremaine people out there, uh, we get more fresh about his suits. <laughs> Dale Cooper talks about buying a new suit, black suit for $199, and that this was his fifth suit so he could wear one every day during the work week. Is it just for the fact that it's a suit? If you will, and ah, yeah. Okay, because yeah. okay, uh, all Dick fashion. Tre- yep, fantastic. He 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 cares about fashion. For all Dick Tremaine fans, no clothes be nice. <laughs> that's that's what they do. <laughs> um, Dale speaks briefly about the connection of Teresa Banks' death to the case with Laura Palmer, but he does not sound like it was him that handled the case. Like at least the way the Diane tape reads, it doesn't sound like he's saying that. You know, you may recall, Diane, that I previously was in Deer Meadow. He kind of talks about Teresa Banks as though it's, like, something he's only aware of from, like, reading a file. He doesn't really sound like this was him, but he also uh, doesn't mention anything about Chet Desmond either or having gone there looking for Chet Desmond. This kind of feels like it didn't really know about what it was going to do later with Fire Walk With Me. Which is fair because this was at the, like, this was released, like, around the point in which... Season two was about to begin, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, was it was. It, it was yeah. released around the time of how far it got. In it was the tape. like it was, it was mid like, mid through the show. Yeah, it was like September 30th versus October 1st on before the killers like even revealed. Exactly. So that's where, with this large gap considered, like different talks may have happened. It's just that, that, that's the same issue that the book has with overall season if two. If you though. consider these new recordings to be canon, there is a I wouldn't call it like 
there's I wouldn't it would, it's an inconsistency in the sense that if he was the one who literally went there I think he would have talked about it differently than how he did on the tape mm-hmm. that's all it really is it's not a contradiction it's just tonally it doesn't fit it, 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 it's something when I, I I think that overall it can fit but you kind of almost have like to shove the piece yeah. a little bit inwards yeah when you're playing you know that that cube as a toddler you have to shove the square through the circle hole and you just keep pushing the square through the circle hole everyone knows that the overall shapes all fit inside yeah if you push thing. hard enough and no, you keep working. No, you just have to twist it. You have to twist it and just put it in. You have to cheat. It's a cheat. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, there's also some recordings here where it has these sort of weird cutoffs that um, because, like, it was if it was from the show, they used the recording that was in the episode. If, the, for example, he was going to be talking and it cut to a new scene and he never finished the recording, it cuts where the scene would have cut. My example for this is where he says, Diane, I have before me in my hands a small box of chocolate bunnies. It, it clicks the recorder after he says that and then goes to the next recording. When I would imagine in universe, he says something about the box. It only cuts because that's all the recording they made for the show. <laughs> so I do think that's kind of unfortunate is that because they relied a lot on the ones from the show, if it cut off mid recording for a scene change, it doesn't add anything new to finish that note. There's a few instances where like it, Things are extended, if you will, and continue on. There, but there are also those weird instances where, yes, the there chocolate is that bunnies, weird chocolate bunny cut off. I don't think Deal was like, I have in my hand some chocolate bunnies. Click. That's it. That's all he I says. Mean, it could, I, like I don't it. think that's what he says. I like it though. I like uh, it a I lot. I don't like it. <laughs> just like imagine, just like he's just trying to announce, like, yeah, I got some chocolate bunnies, and just like he feels so proud about it because like Diane is just his comfort. But in the scene just... on the show, it looks like he's genuinely going to say more, and then it cuts <laughs> to the next scene. I don't know. Um, at one point, Dale alludes to a really bad lumpy mattress that he had slept on in El Paso, contrasted with the ones that are at the Great Northern. Yeah, says he's told Diane that story, you know, so many times he's not going to repeat it. Um, we never hear that story in my life, my tapes. <laughs> There's not even that continuity. You think if it's something he's told Diane all the time, we would have gotten one iteration of the El Paso We've mattress story. We've shown that he does actually like go to the office at times, hang all across her overall like yeah, sill, if maybe. you will, inside the missing pieces. So I don't know. Look, all I'm saying is that I think that they talked more than that little potentially intimate time that they had Chinese food. Okay, I'm I'm just saying there's probably one more conversation at least. One of one of the new lines I liked was that. You know, Dale Cooper says that James knows more than he's actually saying. And Dale Cooper says, but who couldn't say that? And Dale Cooper says, but who couldn't you say that for in the final analysis? And I, and I like that kind of way of wording it that, you know, everyone knows more than they're actually saying. And that's yep. just how life is. That's very true for Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Except maybe Andy. I think Andy might know exactly what he's saying. That, that actually might be the case for Andy. He's a simple person. Very straightforward. You know, I don't think he has any secrets. Does Andy have any secrets? I maybe, maybe. This Lucy? Uh, yeah, kind of. She had the pregnancy for a while. She, she didn't the, say right away. She didn't say it right away. She has secrets. She, she does. Eh, she has. She's not very good at hiding one. them. They're very small and innocent. But yeah. she has some secrets. Okay. Um, one point he quotes Hamlet. He says, now to sleep, perchance to dream, which is really ominous because that's taken from the soliloquy where Hamlet's talking about why should we go on living and the idea of like death is being like a sleep. And it's that fear of well, what kind of dreams may we encounter in that sleep, i.e. <laughs> what kind of what kind of afterlife horrifying nightmares could await us after we die 
So we go on living in fear of that. But he says it in the tape like it's a casual thing, like, now to sleep, perchance to dream. Good night, Diane. Like, it's a normal thing to say, not an ominous quote. <laughs> it's. I don't know if that was intentional. Uh, also, fun fact, yeah. years later, like going into like early 2000s, Kyle MacLachlan, who plays Dale Cooper, would play Claudius from Hamlet in the uh, live action, really strange adaptation of Hamlet that has Ethan <laughs> Hawke in it. And it it's so funny because it's like incredibly, it's modernized, but it's not as like crazy as... Leonardo DiCaprio, people with guns and Hawaiian shirts, like that 90s with Romeo and Juliet. Romeo plus nope. Juliet, yes. No, this is Hamlet where, because there's so much emphasis on the sort of poetry of the character, he's like a photographer. And so in the that version of Hamlet, just as a quick side note, Ethan Hawke plays Hamlet, and there's a part in the story where in the play, he puts on a play within the play. It's very meta. He has actors perform something. The way the film handles this is Ethan Hawke makes a student film and then forces everyone to sit in the theater and watch a student <laughs> film. It's really stupid and cheesy. Instead of having uh, 1.0 Ophelia throw flowers, she throws photographs of flowers. They're Polaroids. It's just very stupid. It's very funny. What, what you're saying is that we need more modern adaptations of these overall stories because... As long as I, they're stupid. As lo- I, I think that there's a level of... Just strangeness and stupid that can be thrown out. In like, order there's to no reason why at, at it couldn't just have day, been flowers. At the end of the day, whether it's Hawaiian shirts with guns or if it's photographs or flowers, both of those just sound fun to me. I just think it's funny because there's no reason why they had to be photographs of flowers. Flowers still exist. They did not have to modernize that. But they like, no, we have to have it be photos of flowers because that's a thing people do. Yes. Is toss pictures of flowers. I just, I don't know, man. I love it. I don't know, man. I love it. I uh, mentioned before that Dale talks about Albert Rosenfeld and that he would take Harry Truman's side if Albert files charges. Uh, we get confirmation that Audrey is 18 as of last August, if we take that to be canon. Mm-hmm. And Dale admits to being drawn into the vice known as gambling, which he calls a vice. So it's not me saying that. That's uh, him. That's him. This I'm saying. Were it. there any other parts in the Diane tapes that really struck you? Um, not too terribly much other than the, uh, portions at the beginning when we were getting a little bit of a focus on Dale, just sort of like making his way into Twin Peaks. I think it was not only A, a great opener, but B, also have to say that where he's nearly dying inside Mm -hmm. of an overall plane, if you will, because it seems that some form of storm has come in, which I also can't help but think of Major Briggs at that Mm -hmm. one point where he's coming back from the White Lodge, if you will. Right. (laughs) I can see someone maybe doing something very funky with like Twin Peaks's existence. For those who have seen The Return, there is a plane ride in it you can think of. That gives nothing away, Professor. It gives nothing away, but at this point, there's so many things apparently sparse within like It's like 18 hours. It's The Return right now. Uh Uh-huh. From the context that you've given me, for the amount of pins that you've given me, for any amount in the return that you've given me, it seems like, for the most part, like that one drawer that you kind of, like, keep stuff in that you don't know what to do with, so you just kind of throw it in, and then one day you just open it up, and it's like, oh, dear Jesus, what? There's rubber balls in here, there's staples, there's there's a little bit of a paperweight in here that I don't know the shape of. You know, there's people who might agree with you that that's actually pretty (laughs) much what the return is. You could argue that. You could argue that. Um, So I have two wonderful and strange questions of the week for you. Uh, First one, you know, after talking about all these things, Mm. in the final analysis, Mm. do you think that the new Dale Cooper content that Scott Frost has written in My Life by Tapes and the new recordings in Diane, do you think that it fits Cooper well? 
I think that it hmm. it fits Cooper well as an additional portion to Cooper that isn't that was not at least very much explored inside of the overall show, but that's also where someone can come in and swoop in an argument that say, that's not my Dale. I think they're valid for that, but I also feel that for my personal takes on it, I like exploring those things that are left mostly unspoken or unheard of, if you will, where we can see a side in which uh, it's either a point for a character to grow from or a point in which can be potentially exploited from a character. I think that there are various amounts of great expansions and points in this book that we can take Dale in, and I genuinely do think that it does enhance uh, the work prior in many, many cases. So you you would view it as true. Like, when you think of Dale Cooper now, you're going to think that these events happened. I'm going to think that these events or events parallel to them happened. Okay. So you now know Dale's family the women in Dale's life prior to the show, like you I would men- say that in your head canon. Like I mentioned before, either these instances or those parallel, if mm-hmm. you will, in which like instances such as these yeah. occurred. Whether or not the names were they exactly the same, I also look into the portion at the end of the Deerwood Meadow thing, in which like... Deer Meadow. Mm, <laughs> where some instances may change, but the chunk of the whole still tells an overall same story of yeah. Joseph Banks. So yes... I, I still like these overall ideals, and I'll probably still remember uh, some of these names going forward, but it, I, I like complicating Coop. Okay. Do you mind if I also weigh in as well? Of course. I, I still, for myself, would view this mostly as fan fiction. Um, very well. Very, very close to the source. I mean, literally, it's Mark Frost's brother. Yeah. And and I think tonally, a lot of the way that Cooper is written, it sounds like his dialogue, but... When I think of this book and, you know, when I'm watching the show, I guess I'll, I'll obviously know next time I watch the show, but I, I don't think it's likely that I'm going to consider this all to be true. All right. Like, I'm going to think that this is a variation. This is a lens through which I can view Cooper through. But I don't know if I would say when I'm watching Twin Peaks seasons one and two, I don't think I would say that, like, I'm considering this to be all the way, like, now I know what Cooper is like. I still feel like the beginning where I see him in Deer Meadow or the beginning of where I see him enter a town of Twin Peaks Mm -hmm. is still my first introduction to Cooper. I don't think of him being 13 with a tape recorder as being how I first met him. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm still a little bit, I I think it's, I think it's good. I think it has used utility. Um, but I, I, I kind of read it as semi-canon. I kind of read it as like, (laughs) maybe, maybe, which yeah. I think is where a lot of people are at as well. Uh, and then my second Wonderful and Strange question of the week is something we teased a little bit earlier. How do you think it would affect someone if My Life, My Tapes was their first experience of Twin Peaks? They had not read this, not read any of the books. They had not watched the show. The first Twin Peaks media they ever encounter and finish is My Life, My Tapes and then go into the show and movie. I think that, so first off, I would have to say that introducing them with this, it's such a strange format that I think that they might be able to adapt to. I think that the, it's easy enough to it'll start to disregard the overall dates, especially if you're not looking into it in the overall digging sense that some maybe, such as Sam Stanley's myself, um, when it comes to, say, for example, tracking the path of Dale Cooper through his overall life in these instances. Um... So, yeah, I, I think that things could start to blur, but I think that overall, like, entertainment could come by 
um, it by the end. And I think that there could be some overall intrigue. They might be very curious on the Dale Cooper that they end up seeing on towards the screen. But on the same course, again, I think that there are points where it can enhance things, especially in the realm of Season 2. Now, what I have to almost be compelled to sort of like bring back to you as my Twin Peaks mm. question of the week. Imagine a course in which you are to take prequels, if you will. Like, mm-hmm. start off someone with, like, the Dale Cooper books. So start someone off with the Laura Palmer Secret Diary and also Fire Walk With Me. Like, start with the prequels of Twin Peaks, these three pieces of media, mm-hmm. and then bring them into Twin Peaks. How do you think that that would affect them? Do you it, think that they would be very strange. Mm. I mean, I, I've heard of people watching Fire Walk With Me before seeing the show. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would just alter it so much because you're not really left with the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, going in, and you, that's going to change. You, ta- you immediately take the knife to that goose. Well, you're, you're going to know, poor <laughs> Zeus. Uh, you're going to know, you're going to know so much about like these characters, darker sides and kind of the underbelly of things mm-hmm. where it becomes less of a mystery show and more of like an unfolding continuation of tragedy. Yeah. Um, which isn't necessarily bad. It's just definitely a different experience than I think how most people would perceive the show. And like, obviously when we first started, I chose to start with the pilot and work through the show and then do fire walk with me to preserve that sense of mystery and unknown. Whereas if you do the prequel stuff first, there isn't room for that. I do think weirdly enough that if you do my life, my tapes before the show, you're not going to get a lot of spoilers necessarily but it is going to, I would imagine, drastically change how you view Cooper as a character going in, knowing his tragic past. Whereas Dill Cooper in the original show does not necessarily instill the feeling of this is a tragic character until mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to imagine the Wyndham Earl stuff would hit differently, though. Because well, if you read the book, and then you get into the show, and then like two-thirds of the way in, Wyndham Earl gets brought up, you're going to be like, what? This again? <laughs> like, that'll be a very interesting feeling. I, I mean, that at the very least, like, it establishes a Wyndham Earl prior to that incept. Say, for example, Wyndham Earl just sort of, like, starts peaking up more and more as more than just a name. In some know. ways, it would feel more cohesive. It'd mm-hmm. feel more planned. It would feel... It wouldn't be a plot twist that all of a sudden, when, you know, Il Cooper has this former partner it's going to be like something you already knew going in so it might actually feel more natural of a plot development mm-hmm. in a weird way this <laughs> might actually address some people's criticisms of weird of i was gonna say weird al weird amel i was gonna say weird al yankovic <laughs> no but i think in some ways this may actually address some of the concerns about Wyndham earl because some people might feel that the Wyndham earl plotline was so random so silly such a turn but if you knew about him going in before he enters twin peaks it's not some random joke villain it's the return of a villain from the beginning. Yeah. So I feel like that would actually make Wyndham Earl seem much more of a presence, mm. um, which I like Wyndham Earl as it is, but maybe that would win over some people who otherwise might feel it's like random. Okay. So there's a, there's some benefits, I would think. I just think that Fire Walk With Me and The Secret Die of Laura Palmer would do so much to darken the mood that when you actually enter, it might be kind of a weird whiplash <laughs> to get comedy. You might be confused about why all of a sudden it's all jokey. Mm-hmm. Because everything up to that point was not jokey. Even My Life, My Tapes, it has some comedy in it, but it's not as consistently light as Twin Peaks can be. I agree. So I think that all the supplementary material is in some way darker to varying degrees. So watching the show after might get a little funky. And then if we're talking about all the prequel material, that would include the secret history of Twin Peaks, at least parts of it. 
Yeah. And you'd have to like read the book for a while. I and feel then like stop. at that point it starts like, yeah, the complication of having to stop with it is why yeah. for one end I'm omitting it, but also on the other end, I haven't gone through all the and book. And then chronologically with Fire Walk With Me, are you going to skip the parts where Annie's on the screen? Like, how does that going to, you know? Because there's parts with Dale and Annie that are from the future. But, so. but again, like, I think that like helping that sort of like appear and establishing that weird timeline yeah. uh, would potentially make it very fun to come back into. I think it would make certain things more impactful, like The Ring. Yeah. that Cooper loses at the beginning of season two and then gets back from the giant, that would take on a whole new significance. It's just the question of whether or not what is more effective, a retroactive yeah. take or, yeah, as you kind of continue on, so. Things to ponder as we look forward into the future. Mm. Next time on the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast, we're going to be looking at two 2002 David Lynch internet yes, series. Yes, are. You haven't seen them yet. You don't know how you're going to feel. No, 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 no. Listener, I at least gaze (laughs) into the general direction. You gaze into the abyss long enough. (laughs) You'll you'll hear a fart and a a vomit approach you from Dumbland. Dumbland is next time as well as Rabbits. If you have not experienced these pieces of media before, you can find them on YouTube uh, in different ways um, through official and unofficial channels. Um, they're weird. They used to be released on David Lynch's website that is now defunct. And now if you like go to David Lynch's website, it redirects you to his YouTube, most of which the rabbits is uploaded to that channel, but the full of it is also other places. It's something to look into if you haven't experienced it before. If you're going in blind, you're not prepared for Dumbland. You're it's also on the Dumbland. Lime Green box set if you happen to have that older DVD uh, set. But we're going to look at Dumbland, and we're going to look at rabbits, and Mm. I am excited for that future. Yeah, you are. Help. Help.